Hello and welcome to another episode of the Haskin Cast Podcast. I am your host, Scott Haskin, and I'm here to do an album review that I never thought I would be doing, but this is at the request of my co-host, and I'm so glad he did it. Let's welcome from the Deep Purple Podcast and life itself, John Matola. John, how are you? Hey, good, Scott. How are you? I'm doing great, man. Thank you so much for, for coming back on the show and for, for suggesting this album. Uh, I'll tell you my brief history with Kiss, and I know that yours is slightly more than that. So uh, <laughs> yeah. I remember when I was in, I think it was the third grade, they had either a short-lived television show or a Halloween special that came out that year. And like a Kiss costume was all the rage. You couldn't even get them in the stores. They sold out so fast. And then the Kiss dolls started coming out and the makeup kits and all that. Um, and then I just kind of forgot about them. And I remember Lick It Up came out on MTV. And then that was kind of it. <laughs> that, that's like the entirety of my relationship with them. <laughs> Until uh, my band wanted to do the song God of Thunder. And we practiced that a few times. And then we never did it. Probably because it had a drum solo in it. And they didn't want me doing the drum solo. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Uh, but, but yeah. It was, it, it was a Yeah, thank you. <laughs> uh, it was a fun song to play, though. I, I did enjoy it. Uh, and then I saw Gene Simmons on a show called Politically Incorrect with Bill Maher uh, mm -hmm. that was before his his newer show, Real Time. And I thought, God, this guy, you know, he's this this rocker. He's done the makeup and the flying over the crowd thing. But when you listen to him speak, he's actually very intelligent. I was really kind of blown away by some of the things that he said. And so mm -hmm. whenever he was coming on the show, I, I tried to make sure to watch it. Uh, and then Peter Chris was on a couple episodes of Oz. And I remember him being on Don Phil Donahue when his identity had, had gotten stolen by another yeah. guy. Uh, and that was about it. And then you guys were on the Deep Purple podcast. You had talked about Kiss. And I thought, you know, I, I've never really given them a chance. So I started listening to Pot of Thunder, listened to a few songs here and there. And I, I don't know what it is. I just couldn't get there. So I was really excited that you that you wanted to do this album so I could kind of force myself to dive in a little bit deeper and, and you know, see what I thought. But, uh, you know, you what was your history with them is much broader than mine. Oh, yeah. I mean, um, anybody that's, you know, listen to listen to our show, we we talk mostly about Deep Purple. But I mean, I can. um uh, relate my, my, uh, my fandom, uh, you know, to a lot of, uh, Kiss because it's my other band that I'm huge into. And I got into them probably, um, into the, in like in the early nineties. So, um, you know, that's when all the stuff you were talking about was like 15 to 20 years removed from me because I was, you know, I was born when they came out. So <laughs> right, <laughs> it could be yeah. like during the first round. Um, but they were kind of having this, um, you know, on the on the verge of like a resurgence, like in the early 90s, because when the album came out in 92, Revenge, that was like the return of Kiss because they went through after they took off the makeup, they kind of had um, what a lot of people would um, say is an identity crisis. And they were, um, you know, they, they always say they're chasing they were chasing trends, trying to be like heavy, trying to be poppy, trying to be like Bon Jovi sounding, uh, you know, the. Um, the, uh, the stage clothes and, uh, you know, kind of uh, trying to copy the glam bands of the day. And then like, right when I got into them was when they went back to like the heavy sound, the black leather, and then the reunion happened. And contrary to popular belief, I was very unhappy about it because I wanted them to keep going in that 
direction because that was like my my lineup of the band you know when i kind of came into them um you know uh, or i got into them at that point but um i was like when i first got into them, i was fascinated with their history um because there was so much of it um and i mean it's not just the the music i mean it was the mystique of how they developed their their stage show their personas um like the like the 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 stories um I mean, just aside from the music, you know, the, the urban legends about like the, the auditions and then like the, the ghost players and the infighting and then the, the breakups and the new members and, you know, all that kind of stuff. It's just a fascinating history. But um, aside from that, if you look at the whole like catalog of the band, one of the best things about them is, is um, you know, a lot of people I think criticize is that they were chasing trends or they were changing their music so much. But I think that that's a good thing because you can go back and be like, today, I feel like listening to heavier kiss, you know, maybe today I feel like listening to poppier kiss. Now I want to listen to concept album kiss. I want to listen to, you know what I mean? They have so many different styles over the years that they have, that they have tried to varying success that it's like, you know, they're, they're actually a really diverse band. Yeah. And, and, and I think part of that too, and one thing that I learned, uh, I forgot to mention watching Gene Simmons on The Apprentice. Uh, mm-hmm. I was, I was particularly excited to see him because I knew he would take a, an extreme leadership position because it's just what he does, but also yeah. he would have very good ideas, which he typically did. Uh, but I think that's part of it too, is because he's so good at marketing mm-hmm. that he was looking more for the success of the band instead of just writing good music that would make them successful right right and i mean that was the that was that was part of the reason that they became successful was that they were they worked a lot on their their craft i mean in the early days they would play the same you know dozen songs like over and over again rehearse and rehearse but then they would rehearse on the choreography Mm -hmm. um they would uh, you know, they came up with the concept of the makeup and the stage show, but then they like took it to the next step. And, um, you know, their, um, you know, Gene, along with their uh, manager at the time, who was, you know, really responsible for that. They were involved with a lot of um, uh, people that were in uh, entertainment and TV. So they were very visual bands. So they're like, well, how can we market this at, in, in terms of... Um, uh, in terms of like they started with TV appearances and then it turned to all the, the goodies and the albums and the toys and, you know, and then it just, you know, what it's turned into now, you know, so they're, you know, they've developed into a brand, you know, a, a noticeable brand, you know, all over the world. When you see the four faces, you know who it is and that's due to, you know, how they marketed in the beginning and, you know, not all the guys were into that, you know, but um, at least in the beginning, but I mean, I thought, you know, I mean, really a good, I mean, whether you love or hate their music, it was a great move because I oh, mean, it made, yeah. them, uh, made them famous. Sure. I, I honestly don't think from the songs that I know, I don't think that they would have been a hugely successful band. I think they would have come out, done a couple things and just kind of faded away because they weren't, they weren't, writing and performing on a level that was competitive with a lot of bands at the time. Uh, but I will say that, that that was a smart move because their music was good enough to keep them there, but that's really what got them the attention was the gimmick, you know, what they would do on stage. Yeah, uh, absolutely. And yeah. I mean, no offense by that. I mean, we talked about this before, that they're, they're really more known as performers than they are musicians. 
Right, right. We were <clears throat> discussing a little bit before we recorded, and you would you would ask me that, um, and and they are they are known more as performers than musicians, or at least let's say in the beginning, because over the years they've had some really uh, like uh, proficient musicians come in and out of the band, but starting off, I mean, they were just really, uh, you know, they were self-taught. They were really just raw. Um, so you weren't going to be putting them up against like the, you know, the guys in, uh, uh, I don't know, Pink Floyd or something like that. Um, you know, or just to just pick any, any band that was like really, you know, technically proficient. Um, you know, they were just about, you know, just playing like, you know, basic, you know, rock and roll. And they were also really derivative too. Like, um, you know, if you hear a lot of the stuff uh, uh, that they did in the early days, they're like, oh yeah, that's, we, you know, ripped off this part from this song that inspired us. So we took this riff and turned it backwards. Or if you listen really closely, it sounds like the melody from this. And it's like, oh yeah, it was, you know, because they were really influenced by the the Beatles, um, at least Gene and Paul were. Um you know, and then their contemporaries, um, you know, Led Zeppelin, um, Peter Chris was uh, inspired by a lot of um, uh, like uh, Gene Krupa and a lot of, uh, you know, jazz guys. So he was really more from a different, you know, background or his musical tastes were anyways. But, you know, when you, you know, put them all together, um, I still think it forms something really unique, um, you know, despite whether it was, you know, uh, you know, really technical or difficult to play or not. I mean, sometimes I think that that's not even the point, you know? Yeah. Um, well, I mean, there's, there's, there's songs that have been number one hits that were only two chords, you know, right. and, and the Beatles were really good at keeping songs simple yet catchy. They didn't have to go out and all layer all these things. They started doing that after the drugs kicked in, but in the early days, you know, it was, it was very much simple music, simple riffs and good vocals. And that's, that's what made them. And that's what Gene and Paul had fashioned themselves after is that they wanted to be Lennon and McCartney. Mm -hmm. That's what they were, you know, that's what they thought of themselves out. Lennon and McCartney, Stanley and Simmons. Yeah, I could see that. Uh, what cracks me up, though, is is Gene, because when you look at Gene, when you see an interview with him, when you watch him on The Apprentice or different things he's done. In fact, a friend of mine just did some uh, charity thing with him a couple months ago. Mm -hmm. But uh, you look at him and he's very stone faced. He doesn't have a lot of expressions. He's just deadpan. And then you see him in the makeup and he's sticking his tongue out. He's flying over the crowd. He's, he's not the same guy at all. He really jumps into character very easily. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I think even back in the day, like, I mean, I've seen all the classic interviews that have been out there, like since they were, you know, bootlegs, um, you know, from back in the day through the eighties or whatever, he was always, like you said, but that very kind of serious, you know, uh, understated persona, uh, very, you know, uh, trying to sell the band, trying to sound very intelligent. And then he, like you said, he gets up on stage and he becomes the demon. So it's, um, you know, it, it's something about getting on, getting on stage and, and, you know, getting in performance mode that that other side comes out. And that was really the kind of the concept behind the band was, is that their, their makeup was developed from their kind of alter egos there there are other sides to their personality and that's what came out kind of like when you dress up for halloween you know it allows you to be something that you know you can't always be in everyday life right yeah exactly and and certainly there's that adrenaline of being in front of the crowd and playing your music i mean we've been on mm -hmm. stage we know what that feels like and you do kind of forget about 
the person that you are when you're, you know, performing. Uh, that's all out of the way. You're focusing on the music. You're looking at the crowd. You're seeing the reactions and that, and the adrenaline's kicking in. You're just happy yeah. to be doing what you love doing. So you could kind of put all that, you know, here's me as a person out the window. But if you get, if you add to that, then I'm going to make this more theatrical, like, like Alice Cooper, for example. Mm-hmm. You know, I have to think in real life, he probably doesn't cut a lot of heads off. But yet he does it every night on yeah. stage. You know, it's very much, uh, but it's such a believable act that when you're watching <laughs> him, it almost feels like he's actually physically controlling everyone in his band. You know, he he swings his little stick around and, and you really feel like he's actually in charge of everyone. And mm-hmm. it, it's just, it's a surreal thing. I've not seen Kiss live, but I would imagine it's kind of similar to that. You just, it, it's like surreal. Yeah, I mean, um, I... I mean, I've only seen them in their heyday through, you know, video. Um, but when I've seen them live, like they were my first live show in um, 92. So I saw them without the makeup. So really it was, it was a regular concert, but I mean, you know, the end, uh, you know, I found out years later, it was probably one of their, uh, their least successful tours. Um, but I mean, you know, for diehards like myself, you know, it was like the the greatest night of my life. I got to see my favorite band and they were playing all the classic songs, but, um, and I mean, they were, they were great. I thought they were great, but most recently I've seen them on their recent, most recent tour, like, uh, um, I think four, four times, but that was all like pre pre pandemic. So it's been a while, but um, I kind of saw him like back to back to back. And at that point, like it didn't even matter because like, a lot of times you hear now, like the, the two, uh, you know, uh, um, Tommy Thayer and Eric Singer and Ace and Peter's makeup. And, you know, it's, there's this whole thing about that. Like, should they be, should they be, um, um, Ace is a copycat of uh, what uh, Tommy is a copycat of what Ace is doing, blah, blah, blah. But none of that really matters when you get into the show, because I mean, I've been like, I don't know, like five, six rows back. I mean, you're basically like right up on the stage. I mean, at that point, it doesn't matter if you're first row or whatever. And I mean, when the curtain drops and like the, the, the pods come down and the fireworks are going off and they're playing all those recognizable songs, it doesn't matter if you, the, the rumors about, is is Paul lip syncing to tracks or is um you know is this guy copying this guy or whatever it's just like it's a fun great energetic show everybody gets into it um you know Paul flies across the audience to a to a podium out in the out in the crowd and he does love gun which i mean i guess he's been doing for 20 years but i mean if you're somebody like me that has seen probably in 20 years like half a dozen shows yeah. you know as opposed to somebody that goes and follows them around, you don't really get sick of it. Right. Yeah. Now, when, when you saw them without the makeup, did they drop mm-hmm. all the theatrics from the show? Was it just a regular concert? It, it pretty much was, but I mean, they had their, they had their outfits cause they were doing the whole, uh, you know, black leather and studs thing. Um, but it was, um, in terms of the stage show, that was the one where they had the, uh, the Statue of Liberty background and they still had pyro and, you know, rockets and stuff going off. Um, uh, Gene, I think still was, he, he didn't spit blood. He didn't do that for quite a while, but I think he went back to, to like breathing fire on that tour because, you know, since he was back to, they were back to kind of the more hard edge look, he was back to being like 
quote unquote, the demon right, yeah. uh, persona more. Um, so there was still an element to the stage show as opposed to a band that goes up there and just has like a flashing light show. Like they still had fireworks and they still had, you know, uh, like fire and stuff like that coming out. But at the, at the very end, which a lot of people think is hokey now. And at the time I thought it was great, um, was at the, the end of the show, the face fell off of the Statue of Liberty because they just had the face and then the hand holding the torch. Oh, okay. So the face came off and it was a skull, like it was a skeleton. And then the torch came down and it was it was a big metal finger. <laughs> it was like, that sounds like that that sounds like a Gene Simmons idea. And it was like, and you think about it, it's like it sounds so juvenile, but you know, I mean, of course, like the 17 year old in me thought it was great. If I saw that now, I'd just be like, all right, what are these like 40 year old guys like rebelling against now. But I mean, it's like, cause right. at, at that time they had actually had some questionable merchandise with a lot of like, um, of that kind of stuff on it. Like, uh, like, like, um, profanity and everything it was really kind of an odd, like time merchandising wise, uh, because I think they were trying to be more like hard edged, you know, but, um, but I mean, I thought it was, I thought it was great. And I mean, when I see it now, it's, it's nostalgic and I think it's awesome because like I said, that was my first show. So oh, sure. And, and of course, over at the, uh, the Rio hotel here, we have Kiss Miniature Golf, which is a, mm-hmm. an, an indoor sport. Uh, it would be more fun if it was full contact, I think, but, uh, they have all kinds of paraphernalia of the band all strewn out throughout, you know, the, the center. Mm-hmm. And it's really cool because you kind of get a sense of, wow, these guys have really had a rich history. You know, mm-hmm. they, they've yeah. started and stopped so many times, but they're still doing it. it. Even during COVID, they started to go out on tour. And then I heard mm-hmm. uh, somebody got sick and then, then they were going to start up and then Gene got sick and they had to, to dial it back a bit. Uh, but they, they were trying, you know, they were trying to get back out there and you got to give them props for that. Yeah, Paul, no, Paul and Gene both had it. And Paul, I think, actually got it twice. Ooh. Um, luckily with no, um, uh, no serious side effects, but you know, it did stall the tour. Um, they still did go ahead with the cruise this past October. I think it was, um, I knew, uh, I, I know some people that were on it, obviously. I mean, you couldn't pay me to get on a cruise ship, like even before the pandemic, I just yeah. <laughs> got into it, but, um, but everybody that I know of is, um, is fine. I'm, obviously glad to hear that because you know you think especially with the way that things are exploding these days that like uh you know something like going on a cruise ship would be like catastrophic but um luckily everybody that i know has been uh has been fine uh so they you know including the band so they went ahead with that um and you know they're still you know they're still out there doing their thing so i have to say i i i'm not a fan of getting on a ship for any reason but the yeah. rock cruises, I have been kind of tempted because, you know, to get to to get a cruise with Deep Purple or Uriah Heep or Nazareth or, you know, some of these bands that we know so well, it's kind of hard to pass that opportunity up. But at the same point, I'm like, can it just can they just come over like just play in Vegas, come over for a few drinks, we'll hang out for a while. <laughs> you know? Yeah, yeah. I'd rather do that. I mean, I, I think for me, it's more uh, the... A cruise ship is basically the same as an all-inclusive resort, except on a ship. And um, in January of 2020, like right before everything hit, um, I was at an uh, all-inclusive vacation in uh, the Bahamas. I remember that. And um, 
And I mean, don't get me wrong. I had a good time, but like it, not my idea of a best time. Like if I had to choose to do something else, I would have done something else. Like I love the people that I was with. Obviously I went with some family um, and um, you know, we had a great time, but just the whole thing with like just people crowding around, they just like herding them into buffets and like, you know, that whole thing is just not my thing, you know? Um, plus you don't get a real sense of where you're at, you know? Um, like culturally, but I mean, that's just my own opinion. Mm-hmm. No, that's true. And, and I remember uh, the guy that does the amazing race, uh, Phil, I can't think of his last name, but he says, if you really want to learn about a town, don't go to the touristy areas, go to the, like, you know, where the families go and, you know, really dig right. into the culture. That's how you're going to learn it. If you're just doing the touristy stuff, you're basically doing that wherever that you could do those same things anywhere else. It's just whether it's going to be in a city or on a beach or you know, right. whatever that I, I have to say, I, I really do feel like I have an advantage living in Vegas because I could have that experience any day by just saying, you know what, I'm going to go stay at the Luxor for a couple of days. I'm, I'm going to Uber so I don't have my car and I'm mm-hmm. just going to go and have a good time and forget about the <laughs> studio and working and podcasting and everything. Just get away, you know, and yeah. I could do that in, in, in the Luxor. It's like 15 minutes for me. So uh, it's kind of nice to live in a town that people come to for that experience when I could just have it anytime I wanted. Yeah. I don't. Yeah, I mean, that's... <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, because, I mean, it's there all the time, so why would you? Yeah, exactly. Well, it also, I mean, between the podcast schedule and the other projects and stuff, it's like, when would I do it? Right. You know, I, I have to be on a weekend, and a weekend is like three times the price of the week. So, yeah. you know, there's that factor, but yeah, it, it's cool. In fact, I just saw, uh, I just saw Rich Little, uh, uh shortly mm-hmm. before Christmas. He, uh, he has a show at the Tropicana that he does and he, the guy was just as amazing as ever. Wow. Really? You know? He's still doing, uh, he's still, uh, he's still performing. Yeah. Huh? yeah. Wow. And he, and he's, I thought it was going to be like, okay, so we're going to hear Ronald Reagan and Jimmy Carter and, you know, uh, but yeah, he's, yeah. he's got those, those, his classic voices, but he's also modernized and done like current stuff as well. This is really oh, wow. well-rounded, really, really worth seeing. Uh, of course, it That's was mask cool. on the whole time because it's, you know, we're indoors and we still have that restriction here. Uh, but yeah, it was, it was definitely worth seeing. I really enjoyed oh, it. Oh, that's cool. Uh, so Kiss, though, they, uh, they have gone through so much, yet Gene's kept it together. He's really kind of the foundation of the band, is he not? Um, he is, but if you, if you ask a lot of people, um, that are into KISS, um, you would, um, you know, they would tell you that Paul is, Mm. um, I mean, Gene is really the, the, the promoter, the marketer of like the brand or, you know, more, um, you know, more like appropriately himself. Um, whereas, um, you know, Paul has always been running the band behind the scenes, like, um, and I mean, you know, I've heard all this without being privy to any of it, but, um, you know, a lot of, a lot of what's known in, uh, you know, from kiss is that, um, you know, I mean, Paul was the one that was keeping the band running through the, through the eighties. And, um, even the, the beginning of the nineties when, uh, you know, Gene was doing, um, uh, other projects were kind of taking away from his focus on kiss. And so Paul has always kind of been at the helm. Uh, he produced the last two albums, that they did, which the last one I think was 10 years ago at this point of like new music. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, it's, it's pretty like uh, common knowledge that like most of the decision-making is probably Paul. 
Yeah. Um, you know, um, like the, the, you know, he's, he makes like the, you know, he's, he's got like the hard stance on things. Whereas like, you know, Gene will weigh in, but doesn't seem to make any waves about it. Um, I could be wrong, but I mean, those guys are definitely like the, the founders, the partners. So, I mean, I'm sure that their share and everything has got to be, you know, equal. Yeah. Um, They probably have their own individual roles where they don't go to each other and say, Hey, I want to do this. Is this okay? But there's probably right. certain decisions where like, we have to agree on this if we're going to go in that direction or move forward. It's weird right. that it's been that they're still touring and it's been that long since they've done an album. But Deep Purple's gone 10 years while still together without putting out an album before. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, um, I, I mean, I, I mean, I know that like, uh, I mean, uh, well, as we know, Deep Purple just released um, and a covers album. And then, you know, before that, they had a album full of original material um because they still like to be part of that process they want to create and um uh, write and create new music um gene and paul have been on record as saying like there's no like there's no point to why should we do it Mm. um you know the whole rock is dead thing like what's the point in new music people are just going to be asking for the classics blah 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 but at the same time paul is saying that he does uh, uh, a covers and originals album of R&B stuff called Soul Station. Mm-hmm. So it's like, so are you not interested in making new Kiss music or are you not interested in just making new music at all? I think he just doesn't want to make new Kiss music. And you know what? I mean, if they, if they don't have it in them anymore to kind of create what people expect from that brand, then they're not inspired to do it or they don't think that there's anything they can contribute, then, you know, maybe they're right. I mean, um, yeah, don't don't do it because it's going to affect. The, you're right. not. It's not going to be a good album if you're not into making an album. I mean, you know, they say, "Oh, there's no money in it," but I mean, it's like, well, you can do it for money. For you know, it's like you don't need the money. Yeah. Well, that, you know, that, I, mean, I don't think there's ever really been money in the making of music. It's it's like you make the album so that you can go out on tour and support it, and the tour is where right. you always made the money anyway. You know, right. And I mean, even now, I mean, the way that people consume music is so different that doing an entire album of songs is almost ill advised. Yeah. Um, you know, but um, I, I think that's the difference between why I don't see them as much as musicians as I do performers, because I don't think they're passionate about music. I think they're passionate about performing. I mean, absolutely. I mean, in the early days, they were. I mean, I've read I've read all their autobiographies. I've read all the important books on them, um, you know, authorized, unauthorized books and everything. So I know all the stories I know, especially in those early days, like, you know, the first like 10 years of the band, like they were huge music fans and really into like creating music. So, I mean, I think that just like, and I mean, I can relate to that because um, I think when you're young and you are, like, you know, learning and you're looking to your influences and you're still out there seeing bands as a fan and you're not famous yet. Um, you know, you're just really into, into music and being a musician, you know, whether you're, you know, uh, like a, like a top tier musician technically or not. I mean, that's not the point. And, you know, this is like, I think that somewhere along the way they, you know, kind of lost that, that, um, you know, that fire, that innocence, you know, as I think a lot of people do. I think the business can do um, that to you. You know, how many people yeah. have left just because they, they love the music, but they hate the business and the business isn't it. We're dealing with the business is not worth the joy that you get out of performing or writing music. 
that's right. terrible. You know, we should be finding some ways to, you know, minimize or mitigate that and support artists being artists so that we get the best out of them and that they're performing at their best and they're happier. Exactly. And I mean, um, that's, uh, I mean, I think that that's something that, I mean, if you look at, you know, almost, you know, what is it? 50, almost, almost 50 years ago at this point when they started, mm-hmm. um, it would, it would be easy for them to go and <clears throat> change up something or just be like, Oh, let's throw in this song or let's, you know what I mean? Just like do something off the cuff or it's like, because they, they didn't have any of that. There was no, there was really no management. There was no, uh, you know, big machine yet. I mean, now 50 years later, I mean, forget it. If they wanted to do something spontaneous, or whatever, every, every piece, every, you know, minute detail of that, that stage show is choreographed so much that it's like, you know, if they, if they said, Hey, let's throw in a cover of whatever tonight, they, they wouldn't be able to do that. They'd have to plan it out. Right. You know? And I mean, that almost makes it sterile, you know, because that's the point where it becomes a huge production. It becomes a show. I mean, at this point, like, you know, a lot of people can, you know, compared the kiss show or what it's going to become like going forward to like a, like a Broadway show. Right. You know, or musical or something that people go to like blue man group or, um, you know, uh, uh, what's the, what's the Beatles thing? So, oh, Beatles uh, love. Yeah. Right. Something, something like that, you know? Well, yeah. And, and it gets stale for those artists too. I mean, I have so many friends that it, that are in or have been in those shows and you're just doing exactly the same thing every night. Like they love like, Hey, give me another project. Let's work on something together. Or just let's, I want to do something creative. That's not what my day gig is because it's just, here's your mark, do this. Here's your mark, do that. And yeah, they come in and they revitalize the shows from time to time. But Mm -hmm. once you've gotten into the new routine, now it's just rinse and repeat, rinse and repeat. So there has to be something, you know, to keep it fresh. And it's it's the same whether you're in a touring show or or a resident show. So yeah, for those guys, it's like, okay, I hit all my marks tonight. Great. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. And I mean, it up. Right. And I mean, uh, you know, everybody, you, you do do it for passion, but you also do it for money. Mm-hmm. And I mean, I can imagine that, you know, them doing rock and roll all night, like every night for five years versus like doing it 40 or 50 years later. I'm sure that doing it five years out, they were a lot less sick of it mm-hmm. <laughs> than they probably <laughs> right. are now. Yeah. You know? Yeah. You got to like, get some um, distance. Right. Yeah. So. Well, the last uh, connection that I have actually to KISS is that I saw uh, Fraley's Comet and I was trying to remember when it was. It was it was around 87. And I can't mm-hmm. remember if he were opening for Deep Purple on the House of Blue Light tour or Alice Cooper on the Raise Your Fist and Yell tour. I saw both of those in Detroit and I can mm-hmm. narrow it down to it being one of those two shows. Uh, I don't remember much about it except to say that I saw him. Because <laughs> I was waiting for the headliner. I'm like, whether it was Alice or Purple, I'm like, that's who I was yeah. there to see, you know. Um, but uh, in fact, that Alice Cooper tour, little did I know that the bass player for Alice was actually Kip Winger. Mm-hmm. Wow. Who would go on to obviously yep. do much bigger things in the 90s. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, either way, I mean, that either bill would have been great. Um, I want to say he might have been with Alice Cooper, but I can't remember because he recently did tour with Alice Cooper again. Yeah. Um, I think it might've been bad company that opened for purple on the house mm-hmm. of blue light tour. And that, that tracks with me. So I'm going to say it was mm-hmm. probably Alice. Yeah. Yeah. Um, like I said, I can't remember. Like I know that there was, um, you know, Ace had done a bunch of press about the Alice Cooper show and talked about 
um, you know, meeting him and knowing him back in the day, but I can't remember if he talked about being on tour with them before. I want to, I want to say that he was, but I can't remember. Well, the best part of that show was it was Halloween night. So seeing Alice Cooper on Halloween night uh, in his hometown, he pulled out all the stops. I mean, it was the most amazing thing I'd ever seen. Just a, a total spectacle. And when I saw him a few years ago with Purple when they were on the Infinite Tour, uh, I, I was just blown away once again by what a showman he is. You know, and oh, even yeah. even Roger was like, going after Alice is that's a that's a tough thing. You got to be on your game. Yeah, you know? I would imagine opening for him would be pretty much the same though. Like you you know what's coming after you, and if you're not really good, he's just going to make you look like nothing. <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Well, I mean, he was he was one of Kiss's influences in terms of um, uh, theatrics. So, I mean, you know, he's he's one of the originators, shock rock. So, right now, I do know that Gene was a big fan of Richie Blackmore. Has a lot of respect for him, uh, and and it doesn't seem like Gene will often admit he has respect for people. So that's that's pretty big coming from him. Oh yeah, well, I mean, I think that he's always worn his his influences on his sleeve. I mean, if he admires somebody, if he likes somebody, if they're an influence, like he'll, he's always said it. Um, like he won't like poo poo it or, or like make light of it. You know? Um, I mean, just look at any interview that he's done. He's talked about, you know, anything from the Beatles to the English bands that they, uh, that they loved, you know, they just revered them. I think he also likes Blackmore because he probably identifies with him on that personal level of Blackmore doesn't take any shit from anybody. It's just like, if he doesn't want to do it, he just doesn't do it. And, right. You know, I think, I think Gene has a lot of that, that same uh, outlook. And it's like, if I don't think it's the right thing to do, it's not happening. Probably not in the same way that Richie does. Like Gene would never storm off stage or refuse to play, you know, yeah. an encore or something like that. But I, I could see where he would, you know, he would admire that, um, that trait in, in Richie. Yeah. I, I think Gene's always been from, from what I know. And again, my knowledge of kiss is very limited, but from what I've seen, uh, they've really been good to their fans. And, and I think that that's been a big part of their successes. There's, there's that thing in rock and roll, like, you know, you go against the grain and you're cool, but when it comes to the fans, they're only going to accept that for so long. Like you got to be there for them. You got to, you know, show them that you care. Uh, they've certainly given them plenty of things to buy, Oh yeah. <laughs> you know. <laughs> oh, yeah. They they've got to be the band with the by far the most merchandise. Yeah, I mean if if there's one with more I I, I don't know about it. Yeah, I, there should just be a museum dedicated to all the things that they've had out from from little to- like they had a Kiss car and the Kiss dolls and Pez dispensers and I mean if if you could put a logo on it they had it. Oh, absolutely. There was, um, actually I was in the uh, middle of listening to, um, another podcast, um, today and, um, I'm not, I'm not done, uh, with it yet, but I, um, so forgive me, I can't remember, but there was a, uh, collector who donated his collection that he's been, you know, collecting since the seventies of not just that kind of stuff, but like things like stage played basses and things that he's gotten from like, you know, uh, Gene and Paul, um, you know, personally or members personally stuff from like Peter, Peter, Chris's wife and uh, donated it as a collection. So wow. uh, people could see it 
And um, one of his, uh, and, and I was doing something else, but I was listening, but one of the questions was, is just like, um, so did this have to be taken on as a whole collection? He said, yes. One of my stipulations was, is like, I donated it because it was just sitting like in a closet or in my basement or in storage. And if I was going to donate it to somewhere, I didn't want them to put in their archives. I wanted them to have the whole thing out on display. Mm, I like that. So um, that's, uh, that's pretty cool. So really there actually is somewhere um, sort of a kiss museum. (laughs) All right. Well, I got my wish. (laughs) (laughs) It's funny you said that. It is. Yeah. Well, let's do And I think I did own, or my grandma did, strangely enough, she had a collection of Chewbops. I don't know if you know what those are. They were these little miniature album covers. And inside you had like a bubblegum record, like like the kind of bubblegum you would get with a baseball card. And they were just like miniature albums and they were called Chewbops. And I think there was Kiss Alive 2. And I want to say maybe one of their studio albums. It might have even, I don't mm-hmm. think it was Dressed to Kill, but I remember there there being at least one Kiss Chewbop, and I'm pretty sure it was Kiss Alive too. There was probably at least one more though, because if they liked a band and they had a couple of popular albums, they would do more than one. Um, yeah. But yeah, so that's that was kind of cool. My grandmother owned a piece of Kiss memorabilia, and she was you know country music and AM news radio, <laughs> so didn't really fit. Wow. But she was a collector. Like if, if she found things that she thought would be worth something someday, and she could get it at a good price, she would just buy it. You know, and it would just sit up in the attic and get ruined. (laughs) Interesting. This album came out in 75, Dressed to Kill. Mm -hmm. And uh, so there's a couple things that I read about it earlier researching this. Uh, Was one Mm -hmm. was that this is Peter Chris's album cover. Did he design it? Um, Or his concept? No, no, I don't. I don't think so. I think that um, maybe. the the thing about that um, maybe what you read is is that a lot of the uh, the concept of the album cover came from a, um, a photographer. There was a photo shoot that they had done for Cream magazine, and the concept of it was is that um, Kiss was dressed up in suits and ties, like going to a day job, except they had their makeup on. And um, if I can remember correctly, it was that they. Um, they heard that there was a John Denver concert in town. And so they had to save the world from John Denver. <laughs> and so they did part of the shoot was, is that they went into like a phone booth down in like a, the subway in the, in the suits. And then they emerged from the phone booth in their stage clothes. And then the rest of that comic was them going around and putting up uh, kiss posters and therefore saving the world from, from, uh, from like, wimpy music (laughs) (laughs) if i I remember correctly i might have gotten a few facts wrong there but the point is is that they went around new york city and they had taken photos of them in the suits and um none of them own suits except for peter chris oh and and their manager bill of coins so i think that some of the clothes that they wore on the album cover were peter's and some of them were their manager's and so I think that's where maybe Peter's name got involved because he was the only one that had had any, um, a little bit of money or had, you know, a lot, like a lot of like different clothes. Mm. Well, that makes at sense. At the time. And, and looking so, at the album yeah. cover, it, it's very well done, but it, it kind of feels, it, and it wouldn't have at the time, but it kind of feels now almost like the Joker from Batman. When you see the guys that are like, they're dressed nice, but you, they, they have completely different weird faces. They're all painted up. Uh, it's it's yeah. a very bizarre looking thing because they're so out of place in a suit. 
Yeah, yeah, I think that's why they they chose it. Um, I mean, they didn't do like a photo like a photo shoot for the album cover. They had already done that for the magazine, and they were just like, "Hey, this would be a cool." concept for our album cover and they just chose one of the photos so i don't think they went into it knowing it would be a concept so i think they just took one of them that they really liked which you know probably was them like you said making the you know kind of unusual poses or faces and just chose that one and put it up yeah and that that would make sense that would absolutely make sense i think it's a good cover i think it just shows you know that that it's almost like a statement of this is not who we are more than yeah. it is this is rep- uh, representing us you know right yeah the first couple of albums well the second album the second album they were in their um in their uh, stage clothes so it was um a little bit more but the, the first album was more of a album cover was more of a meet the beatles inspired uh you know with the the four heads and like no you know disembodied so the, you really didn't get to see anything until the really the alive album cover which came after this one um, in their full glory. And then after that, you know, the, the iconic album covers that came after. So, and now but, this, uh, this was 75 that this one came out, right? Yep. So is this their third album? Yeah, this was their third album. So they, they had done two albums previously and they were like basically back to back to back. Um, the first album they recorded in New York. Um, and then they, went to LA to record the second album with the same producers. And, um, you know, that one is famously, uh, you know, very muddy production, um, you know, didn't, didn't sound really good, but it's a very heavy production. Have you ever heard it? It's like, it's very unique sounding, um, you know, like it's almost like at this point, it probably will never change. It'll never get remixed, remastered. So you just kind of accept it for what it is. Um, but when they were on tour, out there um the album stopped selling and you know their their manager came to him and said okay the second album stopped selling you got to get back to new york and record another album and they were like uh okay <laughs> so so like you were saying before this album sounds like it was done pretty quickly it was so they went back to their home turf and they recorded i think for 10 days in electric lady studios in new york and um basically gene and paul wrote during the day and Ace and Peter would come in in the, the afternoon or the evening and they'd be like, all right, here's our songs. And they'd just like, they'd show them, they'd do the basic tracks, they'd do some overdubs. And that was that. Wow. That's uh, that's a pretty weird circumstance for an album to be written and recorded like that in, in that amount of time. Uh, there are a few things, and we'll get into this when we get into the songs in a minute, but there are a few things about the production I don't like, I think could have made the album much better. Um but that certainly explains a lot of the repetition in the choruses. You know, hey, it, we got to make a four-minute song somewhere, so let's just uh, repeat the chorus six times, and then we'll start to fade it out. Because <laughs> when, you're, when you're under that kind of pressure, A, you're not going to be writing a bunch of hits in, unless you just happen to get lucky. Because that kind of pressure, especially with the the dollar amounts that you're paying for the studio, <clears throat> you're just you're just not going to be able to do that. Paul McCartney couldn't do that. <laughs> you know, so there is a certain element yeah. of, okay, now that gives me a better understanding of why I'm hearing what I'm hearing. Um, I think overall, the writing is pretty good. I just feel like some of the tempos, if they were five or 10 beats per minute faster, could have made a much better song. Um, they feel almost like, like I was telling you earlier, it's like, 
oh, go sing your track. All right, fine, I'll go sing my track. Not like, oh, good, I get to record this song. You know, some of the vocals do feel a little bit blasé to me. And, but that would make sense if you're like, I just wrote this song, I got to record it. You haven't even connected with the song. You know, the, you wrote out words, but they probably don't even mean anything to you yet. You haven't, they haven't sat with you at all. So how do you just go do that? Yeah, that's the, that's the thing with this album is that they had, they had a couple, most of the songs were written during the sessions and they had a couple to fill it out from Gene and Paul's band from, uh, a few years prior mm-hmm. um, that they they heavied up because they're like, all right, we're we're running out of songs, and so they took um, I think two 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 or three songs from their previous band, Wicked Lester, and reworked them and put them on that album um, as well. And um, even with all that, the album clocks in at something like twenty eight minutes, so it's a really short album. Wow, that's um, all. Mm-hmm. And it's got what ten songs on it, so that's that's really short for a ten song album. Well, the other thing too is is that their their producers for the first two albums they apparently weren't working out. So the the president of Casablanca, Neil Bogart, what produced this album? He's like, I'm going to be the producer, wow. and the the stories are pretty much the same across the board. Was is that he was he was not a producer? He was a the record company president. So he presided over the, you know, the, um, the album, but I mean, it was really, if you think about it, it was the the engineer that was probably, you know, turning the knobs and everything. But the other story that was really prevalent around that time too, was, is that he was smoking a lot of weed. (laughs) And Gene and Paul were straight. And so, but in, uh, in one of their books, I think Peter Chris's was just like, there's no way that you couldn't have gotten a contact high from like all the pot that these people were smoking at these sessions. Sure. So, so I mean, um, that, that adds another ear to it is, is like, you know, is it a, is it a, um, you know, is the way that the, the record sounds or the way it came out kind of a result of like, um, you know, people not really hearing what they thought they heard or, um, you know, plus they didn't have a real, producer they didn't have somebody in there like eddie kramer or one of the other you know kind of more notable guys that produced them in the um in the 70s um they basically just had the president of the record company like standing over them saying like i I want you to do this 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 and then the engineer um and um i think that's why the album came out sounding um uh, the production was pretty dry there weren't a lot of effects on it um and um you know to that point like neil bogart really liked things that were really poppy, you know, that's the direction that he wanted to take him in because his thing was bubblegum. That's where he came from, you know, his, his background. So he was trying to get that out of kiss without, you know, turning them bubblegum really. So, I mean, the songs had to be really, really short, really poppy, you know, really kind of catchy. And that's kind of the result is what he got from them. Yeah. I would say everything except for maybe the instrumental, everything is, pretty radio playable you know mm-hmm. it's, it's written in a in a way that the songs are short enough uh they they have a little bit of a lift to them they i think they all could have been radio friendly uh mm-hmm. but that makes sense but yeah i mean to, and he probably i'm gonna i'm just gonna speculate on this being the the big shot that he was he probably just said a few things for them to do so he felt important like uh yeah you guys should do that in f like having no clue what he was talking about, but just to kind of throw some weight around, you know? Yeah, maybe. Yeah. I, I could see I mean, that, that going would, on. Yeah, that that would 
you know, that would reason a uh, follow to reason. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, when you got, when you have a guy like Bob Ezrin telling you, you do it in F, you do it in F and you don't worry about why, because it's Bob Ezrin. <laughs> right. Right. So what, what they really had was not, I mean, even the first couple of albums, they didn't really, they didn't have like the best production sonically. Yeah. Now I have one other question. Uh, there was, I, I was listening to an interview. I think it was with Paul Stanley not too long ago. And I can't remember who the band was, but Gene had an opportunity to manage an up-and-coming band. And he, they said, no, it's going to get in the way of Kiss. And I can't remember who that band was. It wasn't, I don't think it was Nazareth, but maybe Angel? it was Nazareth. Who? Was it Angel? It might have been. Um, also, um, I think Van Halen. It was Van Halen. Yeah. That's who I, yeah, that's who it was. Mm-hmm. Boy, what a difference that might have made. Yeah. <laughs> we would have had a lot more Van Halen toys. For yeah. sure. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> oh, man. Yeah. No, for I, Yeah, I bet. Yeah. Well, I mean, just think about, I, I think about all the time how one decision could change so much. Like Al Pacino uh, auditioning for the role of Han Solo in Star Wars. If Al Pacino had been Han Solo instead of Harrison Ford... Would Star Wars have even made it? And I don't mean that as anything against Al Pacino, but I mean, I just can't see him playing Han Solo. <laughs> Luke! <laughs> I'm your fucking father. <laughs> and, and like one one simple decision could just change the course of everything. You know, if he'd have managed Van Halen, would they have made it? Would they have just fizzled out because he really couldn't spread himself that thin? You know? So many things could have happened. Yeah, I mean, um, my my guess in that one, just jumping ahead to that, was is that they probably wouldn't have because historically, Gene has had a lot more failures spreading himself thin outside of Kiss than he's had successes. So, um, because, I mean, you don't really hear about, you know, a lot of stuff that he did. I mean, the the movies, the TV shows, like all the the business prospects that he's done outside of Kiss. I mean, have you heard of anything? Uh, you know, the- I remember seeing him in uh, what was it, The Runaway with Tom Selleck. Yeah, that was you know that's, that's like it. cult classic. Yeah. yeah, but I mean, even now, I mean, it's like there's the uh, the money bags, Gene Simmons money bag soda. You know, <laughs> that's the. <laughs> I swear it. But the the thing is, is, the only reason I know about that is that that's the last thing that he did. And people, it doesn't mean it was successful, but I mean, right. you know, kiss, kiss nerds want it, you know? Sure. Did, did um, he have a, a reality show or something at one point? He, yep. He had a reality show, which, um, I, I watched, it was, it was pretty good. Um, I, that was, I, I guess it was mildly successful. I'm not sure. Um, you know, just because when you're, when you're a diehard fan of something, you know, you, you eat it up without knowing whether the rest of the world loves it or not. <laughs> oh, absolutely. Yeah. So, yeah. I mean, I, I, if Deep Purple or Uriah Heap had a television show, I'd be, I'd be glued to it every day, you know? Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah. And, and I, I mean, I don't blame him because you're not going to have a success if you don't try things and you're not going to know what works if you don't throw things at the wall sometimes, you know, nothing's going to stick if you don't throw it. Um, right, right. You know, and I, I don't, I don't fault him for that. Like, I mean, I'm certainly not, you know, putting him down for trying his hand at a bunch of different things because, it, you know, if you don't, if you don't try, then you don't know if 
it's going to work. So, I mean, you know, good, good for him for, you know, writing, writing books and trying to start up like, you know, companies and like, uh, you know, whatever else he's been doing. Well, plus um, uh, the guy's very highly creative. So when you're highly creative, you just, you're always wanting to do something with it, you know, and if it happens to be somebody, you know, Hey, we could put out a soda or Hey, somebody needs this. Let me make it, make an ad campaign for them or whatever. Like he's like Brett Michaels. He's one of those people who just can't slow himself down. He just sounds a lot calmer than Brett. Like Brett's high key all the time. And Gene's like, well, I think the best route to take would be this. Like he's, he's yeah. a, a very, very uh, relaxed version. But I think they're both yeah. like equally creative, which, you know, I, I've been very impressed with both of them. I would have never expected mm-hmm. it out of either of them, to be honest. Right. Which isn't fair because I don't know them. You know, why wouldn't True. I expect that they would have those capabilities, you know? <laughs> True. Well, let's uh, let's take a bit of a listen to the first song. This one's called Room Service. And uh, well, I'll get into how I feel about it in a minute. <laughs> okay. Okay, so so first off, uh, the first thing that comes to me is it does very much sound like it was recorded in a studio with, you know, if there happened to be any reverb in the room, that's about all they caught because it is very, very dry. Uh, I would imagine that they have remixed or re-released this at some point with uh, with maybe a better post-production. Um, I know that they've done, um, I know that they've come out with remasters um, like you know, several years ago, I don't think that they've done any remixing or anything on this. That's a shame. Cause it, I think if it sounded a little more alive, uh, this would be a much better sounding album overall. Um, I like the voice. Is this, uh, Peter or, uh, uh that's Paul. Paul, that's Paul. Um, mm-hmm. I like that he has just a little bit of grit in his voice. I think that lends really well to the, to the rock sound of the band. I think the lyrics are a little cheesy, you know, <laughs> uh, do what you feel. Yeah, uh, you know, that that kind of stuff is hard for me to to get past. What I really dig on this song is the bass line. Yeah, you know. Yeah, Gene is uh, Gene's a uh, in, especially in the early days. He did those walking bass lines. He did a lot of really creative stuff. And I so bet that's one of my favorite. Things. He doesn't really get a lot of credit for that, does he? No, from I, I think from uh, from Kiss fans, he does. Um, just uh, like he's he's criminally underrated and he's like so overlooked and blah, blah. I mean, we know that, you know, uh, every everybody that's not a Kiss fan will just be like, oh, he's the guy with the tongue, you know? So yeah. it's like, right. And that's that's kind of the trade off of like when you market yourself like that or you you have an image or a persona is like, you know, a majority of the people are just going to think of you as one thing and not, you know, everything else. But he's really an excellent bass player. That's good. Uh, I really do like the backups. I like the way that they sound singing together, whoever, whatever combination of singers that is. I think the mix is pretty good. Um, 
And and mm-hmm. I like the song. I I just I have a hard time with the lyrics because a lot of their stuff on this album seems <clears throat> to be about just getting laid. Yep. Well, that's. <laughs> I mean, you, well, look at, reason- you look at bands like White Snake or the Scorpions, who have made their entire career basically on anatomical conversation, and yeah. and uh, and they, but they've done it in a more elegant way. Like these guys are just like, hey, wanna fuck? Well, I mean, these guys are also like, you know, early mid twenties. Yeah. Um, and in I think it was Paul Stanley's book, he was basically when he was talking about this song, um, said that he was like as opposed to the first two albums, he was writing they were writing really fast on this album. And when he was coming with the lyrics, like he was coming from a place of like he wasn't just dreaming about life on the road. He was immersed in life on the road. So this is what he, this was his life now. This is what he knew. So he was truly writing like from the point of view of like a young guy in his twenties. And this is, this was like the the buffet of life. So, um, you know, when you hear him singing this, he's like really singing it and meaning it. And um, yeah, you know, now it probably sounds cheesy, but I mean, for back then he was doing it with conviction because that was, that was their that was their life back then. That was their lifestyle. Well, and, and um, think about it: to be a young kid and have people looking after you to where you could pretty much get in any kind of trouble you want, and it's somebody's job to just smooth it over. You mm-hmm. know, like that. That's like my first job I had at fourteen was working at Dunkin' Donuts, and when I started there, uh, the owner said you can have anything you want unless it's in the front display case. So like no munchkins, no brownies, because those cost more to make and they were more time consuming. But all the donuts in the racks on the back, all the soda, all the coffee. And I thought, you're an idiot. Why would you give a 14-year-old kid the key to the candy store? You know. But I'll tell you what, by the end of the second day, I didn't want to see another glass of Mountain Dew. I didn't want to see another donut. Like I got it after that. But think about mm-hmm. think about there's somebody like that just sucks the sugar right out of your body so you don't have to worry about the damage that you just did to yourself and you could do yeah. anything you want it's candyland. Of yeah. course as a as a 20 something young kid that's what what you're going to be doing. Yeah. <clears throat> but that being said with this song I think it's a great opener. Mm-hmm. Um I always I always like the pace of it. Um I always thought it was really fast paced like you pointed out i love the bass line um i i think that like this is probably one of like um the whole album like peter chris's drums are really well defined i think he's still playing with like a lot of energy and it really came out in this album especially he does like a lot of fills yeah um which are you know i i take notice of because as you know the 70s toward the end of the 70s is you know everybody that's a kiss fan knows is that he was really ran out of steam and you know lost his lost a spark but here he still really had it and i think it was captured on this and um you know contrary to what a lot of people say is it's like i like the dry production on this you know i mean that that's really what makes it for me because it's just a very like here's the album like here's just here's here's kiss like in the raw you know because especially if you hear their first two albums the first one um production's a little closer to this but the tempos are really slow the second album, it's very sludgy production and the tempos are really slow. So, you know, this one, the tempos are really upbeat and the music is really upbeat and the production is really crisp and like and, and uh, clear and snappy and so are the songs. And 
Um, I, all the instruments are really well-defined. Like if you hear it, it's like, I hear the guitar, I hear the guy singing the chorus, I hear the bass, you know, it's all separated out really nice. Like it's not all muddied together. So yeah, it's a good mix for sure. Uh, boy, yeah. thinking in, in terms of what their concerts must have been like supporting the first two albums with slower tempo songs than what you generally find on this one, those must have been some tough shows to go out and play. And that's not very exciting if everything's got a slow tempo. Well, the thing is that the in the shows, like their tempos were uh, like a lot, sped up a lot. Like if you see any of the early shows, like one of the things that they said about the albums was that they really slowed the producers had them slow the tempos down. So it wasn't really representative of what they were playing live. So, so they really did have a really faster, like, you know, a lot of those songs trend. That's why Alive was so successful because like it, it translated a lot better onto the, onto the live record because the, the songs had a lot more energy to them. Yeah. I think for me, and, and I get what you're saying on the production for me, I think I feel like everyone was in a different room you know, like a different enclosed booth recording their parts as opposed to like everybody being in the same room and having that eye contact and and being able to read each other. Uh, It feels more like they were separated when I listened to a dry mix like that, because it without that little, even just a little bit of reverb, without that, it just feels very disconnected. Even though the music is very tight, they're playing very well together, but it just gives me a sense that they weren't together when they did it. Mm -hmm. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah, no, I mean, I, I love a, I love a good room reverb, you know, more than anybody. Um, but I mean, uh, I, I believe that the studio they recorded in was really small. Um, they were really, they were under a time crunch. Yeah. And um, I know that um, they were there also their equipment wasn't, you know, you know, they didn't have like a huge studio or huge equipment. Like I, I can't remember what kind of amps they were using, but they were like these little, they were using small amps and they were just cranking them up as loud as they were go. So I think it would just like really a, you know, an exercise in it being a really studio sounding album. Yeah. I and I, I think the individual instrument sounds are fantastic. I think they got a great bass sound. I think the guitars and the drums sound great. Uh, and, and thinking about the fact that they only had a few days to write and record this, the engineer probably only had a couple of days to mix and master it too. Mm-hmm. You know, if they're going to put that pressure on the band, what are they going to do to the engineer? Right. You know, but yeah. overall, I think it's a good song. I agree with you on the tempo too. I think that's a great opening tempo for a rock album, you know, something with some energy to it. And let's, let's kick into high gear here. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Well, let's check out a little bit of the second song. This is called two timer. I will say uh, on this album, Peter Chris definitely does like his cowbell. Oh yeah. <laughs> he's, he's like yep. Gary, Gary Driscoll on the first rainbow album. If he could sneak a cowbell into it, it was going to be there. <laughs> uh, I like this song. I, I, it, it's kind of fast to go to a, or soon I should say on the album to go down to a slower tempo. I think maybe one or two songs at, at a higher uh, pace would have been good. I like Gene's voice on it. And I really like, 
this feels like like a really good edgy groove to it. You know, it's, it's got just a little bit of a lower sound, uh, a little more bottom end in the song. Uh, I actually like the song. I would have liked it maybe a little bit faster, but this is like a good blues rock. Yeah, no, I, I always like this. Uh, I always like this song, too. I like the, um, the the guitars. I always thought sounded slightly different. They had this kind of like this like this edgy kind of like buzzy like crunch yeah. to them. Um, and, um, even the, the opening chords are very similar to, um, they're the, basically the same as Detroit rock city. Da-na, da-na. So, ex- um, which I mean, they would do like uh, a year later. So, I mean, it's, a uh, another, um, uh, I don't know for a fact that they recycled it into that, but I mean, that's, um, you know, kind of, uh, the way that they started out Detroit rock city was done and this one was done so um, that's kind of an interesting, you know, bit there, but, um, but regardless, like, um, you know, again, with like the, um, you know, kind of the, uh, the walking baseline and the, uh, you know, the good groove and then, you know, the background vocals, which was like really a, a big part of like early kiss is just hearing like those separate voices, like in the chorus, like thinking like, all right, I hear like these two or three guys singing rather than it being a, like a, like a big gang vocal that's, you know, overproduced and you can't pick out who it is. Like you can right. tell that's Gene and Paul singing back up. Yeah. And, and I really think that uh, the vocal melody on this is really nice too, just through the verse where he lifts it up, where he drops it back down. I really like that. I think it adds a nice d- dynamic to the song. Oh yeah, definitely. This is, um, I mean, you're not going to hear me say that I dislike pretty much anything on this album. (laughs) Well, it's funny. Um, You mentioned Detroit Rock City. I forgot all about that song until you had just said it. And I'm from Detroit, so that's sad. Uh, But, you know, that that was a very progressive song compared to what we're hearing on this album. There's not a lot of... There's some good parts where they play really tight together and and do some specific stops, but uh, mm -hmm. that's a very progressive song in comparison to what we're hearing here. And that was only a year later. Yeah. Well, I mean, that's, um, I mean, if you hear some of the demos of what they did, it sounded very similar to this. And then when they brought in the raw material to Bob Ezrin, the rest is history. There you go. As they say. (laughs) Well, and and again, to be fair, you have 10 days, you're not going to be writing a lot of technical parts to songs because you just can't, you don't have the time to write them and then to have everybody learn them and get comfortable so you can get it in one or two takes. I mean, you could be all day with one song because you just didn't have the time to really learn it. Right. Exactly. So, I mean, they, yeah, exactly. They, it's not like they can put a lot of different flourishes in this. They're just like, okay, we got to bang it out. Yeah. And so I really want to be fair when I, when I talk about this album, because keeping those circumstances in mind, it's not fair to judge whether you like a band on the whole on any one project, but especially mm-hmm. if something's done under these circumstances, I'm going to say they, they pulled out a pretty good album considering mm-hmm. that alone. I mean, I think that one of, that's one of the reasons I prefer this album, um, which, you know, a lot of people, yeah, it's okay. You know, it's, it's before they hit their stride, blah, blah, blah. But I think it's like the, the, the last album that they, um, they were really like, um, you know, we're, we're playing honestly, Mm -hmm. you know, because it's like, you didn't have any, this was before they had any big time producers before they took a lot, a lot of time writing songs before they had, uh, you know, um, like ringers coming in and playing like, you know, a bass or a guitar part or anything. This was the four guys in there, like in New York city, 
like playing their music, just like the the first three albums. And I think that this is probably the the closest one that you can get to like them just being like in the room, like hearing them as they were. And then, and to some people, like they'll, they'll be like, Oh, if you can go back in a time machine, what would you, which show would you see? And people would, Oh, this one, this one. And you know, and I'm like, I, I would want to see like one of their first shows, like when they were playing, like, you know, in the, like with like five people, mm-hmm. you know, yeah. and people like, why would, why would you want to see that? It's like, because that's, that's the type of thing that fascinates me, you know, seeing them like, when they were still working everything out. Like, I mean, that's, that would be, that would be like my, what, like my, what is it? Uh, the three, three wishes genie situation. This is like, I go back and see them when they were playing like on, on long Island or like, you know, on the, their famous like new year's Eve show or something like that. You know, when they were like unknown before they had the big stage show, I mean, that'd be fascinating to see that. And that's what this is. This is part of that. And, and to see that progression from where they were as performers at that time versus what they, you know, obviously grew into be some of the greatest, you know, visual performers we've had in the music industry. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, that would be fascinating. I love that too. I love hearing, you know, early versions of songs so I can see where they, where they came from. I, I just love that stuff because it really makes you appreciate where they got even yeah. more. Mm-hmm. You, know, you can only appreciate it to a certain level if you don't understand how bad it was at one point. You know, when they were first starting out. And I don't mean that in the way of making fun of how, how it would sound, but just to see like the progression of, wow, when you guys started out, you really didn't know what you were doing and look what you turned that lump of coal into. Yeah. Very cool stuff. Uh, I will say, though, too, I love the fact that this was done before current production where, you know, everything now has to be perfect. If if something is even slightly off, they go in and fix it. And And we've really taken the humanity out of music. I like that this album is a little bit sloppy, you know, that, that even when they're tight, they aren't exactly tight together. Uh, I like that because it's human. It's, it's real people playing real instruments without anybody mm-hmm. saying, well, you would have played this over here if you knew what you were doing. So we're just going to move it for you. Yeah, exactly. And we, we talk about that a lot on the, on uh, the deep purple podcast too, is is like uh, how, you know, a lot of, a lot of things now are just sanitized. I think we recently were saying that on an episode where it's just like, Oh, if the, Oh, you know what? It was our um, highway star isolated mm. tracks. Yeah. If you've heard that oh, yeah. episode and when we were hearing all the tracks separated out, we're like, well, if that was today, they would have, you know, cut this out or cleaned this up. And it's, it's nice to not have that done. You know, it's nice yeah. to hear those you know, flubs or mistakes or, you know, whatever in there. I was absolutely blown away by some of the stuff that that you guys played because I would have never thought those mistakes existed in that song. Me They're too. just so well buried <laughs> yeah. that you don't even notice. The the one on that album though, uh, which stands out just on the album itself is the beginning of Space Truck and because they're not a hundred percent on together. I think mm-hmm. there's one note where I think Roger or John comes in just a little bit early and it's so obvious Nowadays, they'd be like, nope, do it again. Or or we'll yep. fix it. Don't worry about it. Yeah. You know? I like when music sounds human. You know, I, I, oh, yeah, I'm not too. a fan of the way we're producing music today. So even to listen to this and listen to them be a little bit off from each other, like, I love that. I really do. Yeah. Yeah. Well, let's That's what makes out. it exciting, yeah. Oh, for sure, yeah. Let's check out a little bit of the next one. This is Ladies in Waiting, a song about women.
that's Gene, right? Yeah. 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 This one, I, I really like the riff on it. You know, I like the way that they're picking it. Um, mm-hmm. I think it sounds really good. It's it's a good, solid song. Again, a little bit slower tempo. But I think I think for the stuff that Gene's singing, it really works. Yeah. I mean, um, I know that this, um, you know, uh, uh, this is one of his uh, songs he gets um, accused of being really misogynistic about now. Um, so you've been to the market and the meat looks good tonight is mm-hmm. the opening line. Right. So, I mean... <laughs> Like, um, I wonder what he's singing about, <laughs> yeah. but, um, but I mean, it's, uh, you know, again, they're just like, at that point, they're just singing about what, you know, their life was like. And, um, you know, they, it was coming really fast, you know, and, um, you know, it's about the, the ladies in waiting, you know, they're probably the, the groupies lined up and him having his pick. So, um, you know, it, but I mean, the lyrics were always, were never as important to me as the music. Yeah. So I mean, um, for this one, I mean, uh, it was it kind of had a very similar tempo to two timer. It just kind of went like one Gene song into the next, and so it kind of almost sounded the same. But I mean, I still enjoyed this one, and mostly for the fact too that like um, you know Ace had a really great solo on this one. Um, which, um, you know, he did a lot of like, uh, guitar doubling things, which, um, kind of reminded me of, uh, Tony Iommi in the mm. early days. If you're ever familiar with some of the Black Sabbath stuff yeah. where he would like do two guitar solos and they would be kind of like dueling it out with each other. And then somewhere toward the end, they would like meet up and like sync. And yeah. that's kind of what, that's kind of what happened with this, um, which we didn't hear, but it comes like, you know, I think after the first, the first verse, um, and, you know, a lot of people are just like uh, Destroyer, Rock and Roll Over, uh, Love Gun. Those were Ace's classic solos, like even, you know, a couple on the first album. Like, it's not the most popular opinion, but I think some of his best solos are on this album. Just because they're they're most genuinely him. Right. You know, and they sound great. Mm-hmm. It's just for me, uh, I find it weird in the structure of a lot of the songs is that the solos start right before the fade out. And, and I, I kind of feel like, you know, and of course, with them being so short, you don't have room for a lot of soloing either. Uh, right. But, you know, this one comes in at, uh, well, this one's only two minutes and 32 seconds. So so there yeah. you go. Uh, but, you know, it, it's like there's so much talent here that we're not hearing because they didn't they didn't structure the songs in that typical style of verse, chorus, verse, chorus, bridge, solo, you know, chorus, 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 till fade or whatever. Uh, we're actually getting the solo towards the end of it when it's actually underneath some of the vocals, too. Right. Which, I mean, you can tell the guys have the talent. It's just, again, you know, 10 days. <laughs> what are you going to do? Yeah. You know, but they still managed to pull out a, a pretty decent album. And I have to say the first time I listened to it, I hated it. And I thought, <laughs> how am I going to do the show with John? I'm not going to back out of it. I'm going to do the show. But how am I going to do this? And you know me, I always try to find the good things in, in everything, especially music. And I went back and listened to it, and I listened to it again, and listened to it again. And the more I did, I found things that I'm like, you know what, this riff actually is pretty good. Like when I heard it, I'm like, ah, this, this isn't that good. And then when I really listened back a couple of times, I'm like, all right, this album's starting to grow on me now. And I'm really glad I gave it a chance because I don't hate it. I don't even dislike it. I think it's a pretty decent album. And now that I know some of the backstory, I could appreciate it, obviously, you know, a lot better. Yeah. So thank you. (laughs) Thank you, John, for the for the challenge. This is only the second show I've done with an album I didn't know. 
the mm. first one I did was when I did Zebra's uh, first album, Zebra, mm-hmm. because I loved Who's Behind the Door and Tell Me What You Want, but I never gave them a chance either. And when I had Terry T-Bone Mathley on the show, we talked about it and I said, all right, I'm going to do a show on the Zebra album, never having listened to it. And it actually w- went really well. This one I had a little bit of adv- advantage on. <laughs> Not much though. So let's, uh, let's take a listen to the fourth song, Getaway. So that's Paul. Uh, that's Peter Chris. Oh, that's Peter Chris singing. Yep. Wow. He's so got this a was, real grit to his voice, doesn't he? Yeah, he does. Yeah. When he, he yeah, a lot of people know him from Beth, um, of course, um, you know, that, that don't know Kiss that well, but some of the rockers that he does, he's like, you know, he can, he can really bring it. So would they do this song live? Um, oh man, I don't think they did. Hmm. It's I mean, you know what? Don't don't quote me on don't quote me on that. But okay. um, I can't I can't think of it offhand. I like his voice. I I think it would be limited just just hearing just this. He's not putting a lot of pitch or inflection into it. He's singing very straightforward. Which uh, I like the sound of his voice. But I mean, for me, it's like he's not really feeling what he's singing. And, and again, taking into account you know how fast they had to get this done. Um, but I think if he would have put a little more inflection into it. I think I would probably like the song better, but it's got a great groove to it. Well, this, this was a, a song. Usually the guys that write the songs are the ones that sing them, but this one was written by Ace Frehley and he wasn't comfortable singing yet. So they gave this one to Peter. And um, I mean, I think that it's, I think it's great. You know, I mean, I, um, I think it's another one too, where um um, you know, the, the playing is great. And, um, again, like the, the, uh, the baseline in the song is really like, you know, the star, because like, you know, the beginning he's doing this really high thing. And then when they kick into like, you know, the second part of the verse, he starts going lower and starts doing more of a groove on the bass. And it's, um, you know, it's a lot of stuff I think that elevates the songs, even though we talked about how they they sound really quick and they're not as maybe <clears throat> fleshed out as they could have been. But um, I think that adds a lot more depth to it than if he was just kind of, you know, pl- plucking the root note. Oh, for sure. Yeah. I mean, just just go. And I get that with uh, with Uriah Heap a lot because a lot of those uh, bass parts are are just all over the place. And it's really interesting when they, you know, when you're playing more melodically as a bass player, and then you decide to, okay, now I need to support the low end. It changes the song completely, mm-hmm. you know. Uh, and I really like that because it's it's if you if the bass is always playing low, you don't really notice it. You know, it's just kind of there. If it wasn't there, you would notice, but you don't really hear the bass as much as feel it in a lot of songs. And it's often mixed that way. But in mm-hmm. a case like this, where it's very very predominant, that change. Because all of a sudden, the whole song just feels different. Yeah, very cool. Yep, absolutely. Well, let's check out the next one. This is called Rock Bottom. Now, if this, okay, I'm just going to say, if this were a Brett Michael song, 
it would be about women. <laughs> <laughs> I have to say this is my favorite song on the album. And that's weird to say on a rock album that this would be the one that would be my favorite. It reminds me of something Metallica would have opened a song with back in like the Ride the Lightning Master of Puppets days. Interesting, uh, yeah. But it, but this song sounds alive. They they captured the the reverb of the room on these guitars beautifully. And this is maybe that's probably part of why it's one of my favorites is because this is that sound that I was looking for in the other songs. But I think the playing is brilliant. It's very beautiful. It's very patient. And uh, and it is very smooth. Mm-hmm. I love when the second guitar comes in, especially that just takes it up a whole nother notch. Yeah, so this was, um, I believe that they did them on 12 strings um, when they originally recorded it. Um, I think that the, the, the acoustic intro, it probably goes on twice as long as it should, like when they do it live, they obviously don't do it on 12 strings and they, they cut it in half. Um, so I always thought the intro was a little bit long. I mean, I do enjoy it for what it is because I mean, you know, they were, you know, obviously, you know, uh, musically like, uh, you know, taking a lot more, you know, chances back then in terms of like doing stuff like this, than just going straight ahead rock and roll. But it was, um, it was a part that, um, that Ace had, that they put at the beginning of a song that Paul had written, um, which was the, the, you know, the main part of the song, which that is like, I, I agree with you. It's like one of my two favorite songs on the album, which, you know, the next one is coming up. Um, but this is definitely like a classic rock song when it kicks into the, you know, into the heavy part, um, which they, they have played this one live, like in the seventies. And then they did it again. Um, um, uh, they resurrected it on their unplugged album, like in the early 90s. Oh, yeah, this would be a perfect song for that kind of situation. Uh, yeah. I, I do feel like there was a bit of a missed opportunity. I would have loved to have heard a solo over top of, of that uh, pattern. That would have been really nice. Um, but overall, I, I really like the song. It, it it could have gone in so many directions, and it just was basically this uh, over and over again until it, it ends. But uh, I love the the sound of it. I love the melody. I think it's fantastic. Yeah, I can, I, I'm glad. I'm glad we can agree <laughs> on a favorite too. That's pretty. That's yeah. pretty good. Yeah. Uh, so the next song that we uh, that we come up to is called "Come On and Love Me." That sounds like something I said in high school a lot. <laughs> <laughs> Mostly to an empty room. Music magazine 
I like this song. Um, the intro, the first guitar you hear is a little bit quiet because that is actually the rhythm guitar and they didn't put it up in the mix. They just kind of left it at that rhythm volume. But I think yeah. that adds kind of a cool dynamic to it because it's not as upfront in your face as it should be. Yeah. You know, um, I love the doubling of the vocals there in the second part of that verse. I thought that really added a nice dynamic to it. Uh, it's mm-hmm. a pretty decent riff, you know, real simple. Um, the words drive me nuts. It it, it it honestly reminds me of something that Joel and Turner would have written. You know, just, just like what... And, and the thing is, like, these weren't cliches at the time. So trying to think about in 1975, it probably would have been fine. But hearing lyrics like that now, it's like, you know, she was only 17, saw in her magazine, thought she was a beauty queen. Like, what else can we rhyme that sounds like rock and roll? You know, so yeah. the, that's that's the kind of stuff that, that I... I don't like, but if I listen to the voice as an instrument, I really like the way it sounds with the song. Well, this is, this is probably my favorite song on the album. One of my all time favorite kiss songs ever. Um, It's, it's just, I mean, it was a classic in the early days. Like uh, it was a staple of the set and um, I just like, I've always loved it. Um, and there's just um, when the, when the song kicks into the chorus, when they go, come on and love me. And the guitar does those, those bends when he does that rhythm behind it, that kind of lead guitar, you know, it's, it's just, it's so, it's so catchy. And uh, there's just something about it that, you know, gets me going. And um, it, it's just, it's classic kiss. It's probably kiss like at their best. Like this is one where people are just like, Oh, what's, what's kiss all about. I'm like, listen to come on and love me. Okay. Is this uh, was this released as a single? Because it seems like it really would have been good single material. You know what? I don't know offhand. I know you know rock and roll night was, and it mm. tanked at first. Oh, really? Wow. Um, yeah, yeah. Well, it did not until they did the live version and they re-released it as a live version did it become uh, somewhat successful. But the the album version from this one did not do so well. I can't. I don't know offhand. Um, if it did. Um, but, uh, one of the interesting things about this too, which they did in a couple of other songs was, is, um, um, even though they did have limited time, they were using a little studio, uh, kind of like layering here because, uh, they were, you know, they had heard about how, uh, BTO was using acoustic guitars to pad up and fatten their sound. So in the background, they were doubling the, electric guitar track with acoustic guitars and it's mixed way down in the back yeah i was gonna say i didn't hear anything acoustic that's very interesting i did hear some layers on the front end of it though you know there's there's at least three different guitar tracks there and i like that you know Mm -hmm. i think that that that's probably one of the best production values i've heard on this album too yeah if you if you listen to a couple of songs and you hear that kind of like intangible then that's what it is kind of like um how a year later they um you know Ezrin had them double the guitar riffs with a piano mm-hmm. uh using that as kind of like a pedal tone wow, okay, that's interesting. Leave it to mm-hmm. Bob man that guy always just thinks of something right you know? it's it's just like he in the middle of the night he wakes up and he's like piano double and writes it on something and puts it in a hat. <laughs> And then the band comes in the next day. He's like, all right, let's draw from the hat. All right, that's what you're doing on this song. And it, and it's a hit, <laughs> you know? But it's interesting. It's interesting to think that they thought of doing something similar to that before they even hooked up with Bob Ezrin. Yeah, for sure. Um, you know, so even then they got that concept of, you know, trying to fatten up the sound a little bit. 
That's interesting that BTO came up with that too, because they they were a pretty you know good heavy band too. Mm-hmm. Hmm. Very cool. I like the idea. I'm gonna have to play with that now. That's that's gonna be uh, something that you might hear in one of my songs one of these days. All right. Uh, okay, so we're now to anything for my baby. especially like the guitars on that last part right there. You know, you're hearing some extra playing on there. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think this is one of Peter Chris's best songs on the album, uh, yeah. personally. Uh, I love the way it starts. I love the sound of it. It's got the right tempo for this song, I think. Um, I know I said earlier, like, if everything was five or ten more, but this, I think, is actually, like, the right tempo for this song. Um, yeah, this is a good, good grooving song. I love the sound of the voice on it, too. It's uh, all over. I would say this this would be another one of my favorites. Yeah, this is another one of my favorite songs on the album. I'm not. Um, it, um, I love. I love the verses. I just think the the verses still give me goosebumps. I just like love them so much because they, you know, the, um, <clears throat> you know, the chord progression is just so good. Um, but this is another one where if you if you hear it, that's another one where the uh, maybe a little more um, obviously the acoustic guitar doubles the the. Um, the electric and you can hear it when they do the um it's kind of a it's kind of a paul stanley um uh signature is is like uh when he writes a riff he goes da da you know that kind of um that kind of who thing i yeah. guess um you know is like this very kind of um that's kind of a hallmark of his songwriting you can hear it all through the kiss albums you know it's like it's a it's like a paul stanley device is like when he does that kind of majestic uh you know chorus of, you know right yeah and um that's um and which i always thought was cool and it's funny because um like years ago one of my guitar teachers pointed that out to me um he's like yeah that's like it's like a paul stanley thing is you know are they you know showed me a few examples i'm like huh wow, wow. um <laughs> but um you know but i mean i love it you know i i eat it up i mean it's just like i know what kiss is and that's what i love about it so i mean yeah this this song is is like like i said the chorus doesn't hit me as much um you know it, it's kind of where it loses me a little bit but i live for the verses yeah um i just think it's a great that that makes it a great song. And, and the opening was very Beatlesque too. I, I know you're not a huge fan of the Beatles, but it kind of reminded me of like the early days of the Beatles. Like I want to hold your hand and songs like huh. that, you know, uh, it really had that feel in the beginning and then obviously blossomed into something completely different. Uh, but I thought it was, it was a good start and I love the direction change. That was a nice surprise. Uh, yeah. Overall, another song I would say, I actually really like this one. For sure. Awesome. See, you're turning you're turning me over into a I'm kiss turning man around. Now. <laughs> and, and the funny thing is, John, honestly, I have tried several times in the last couple of years to what is it all about? Why are these guys so popular? I just don't get it. But but to, you know, having this opportunity that you gave me to really dig into them and really pay attention to what was going on. Um, yeah, I, I'm gonna have to check out a couple of their their albums where they had time to write and really develop their songs. And see what mm-hmm. I find in those. Because if I like these that were kind of done on the rush, you know, I might I might like those even more. 
Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think you have to, uh, you know, in order to get a sense of a band's catalog or, you know, that maybe you said you're not that into, you have to go to somebody that's a, a true fan and be like, all right, this is where you got to start. Because if you arbitrarily started like somewhere, like if you picked up Destroyer, I mean, you know, uh, arguably their their best album of all time, you know, the most classic, the most recognizable, but not the most Kiss-like. Mm. You know, that's not representative of what they were about, like typically. Now, see, and you you mentioned the term true fan, which I love because I'm sure that you've seen this plenty of times with the Deep Purple podcast, as I see with my Uriah Heat podcast, is a true fan is somebody who just decides that they can make decisions for the band, right? Like, well, you shouldn't let them go. There, There is no, there is no band if this person isn't singing. You know, I, I get that all the time. Like David Byron was the only true singer for Uriah Heep. Well, I really like the John Lawton stuff, but no, Dave Byron's really the only, you know, like bands move on, things change. You have to just say, this is what happened. And they went with it and just go with right. it. But there's so mm-hmm. much of that, almost like I bought the album, so I own the band mentality that I, I just don't get. I'm sure with Kiss going through so many different styles over the years, had so many people complaining about, well, this isn't really Kiss if you're not doing this kind of music or, you know, like you're not allowed to grow as musicians. Right. And I mean, come on, what what band doesn't go through that, doesn't have a fan base that does that, you know? Yeah. And I mean, look at all the changes that Deep Purple has been through all over over the years. And now 50 years later, they're still making number one hit albums. Mm-hmm. You know, in a world where it's so oversaturated with stuff, and yet here they are, their last two albums have hit number one in multiple countries. That's pretty amazing. But I mean, it's even if you go from where they started, like um, we were we were talking about this on one of our episodes, like who would have thought like by 1976, like the the funky version of Deep Purple that in 1968 with Rod Evans and, and Nick Simper and they're singing and um, uh, singing and playing in there and the type of music they were making that they would ever like, you know, less than 10 years be like this kind of like a funk rock type of band. Right. Like, you know, right. I mean, but I mean, that doesn't make it any less valid, you know, it's like in some cases it's, you know, you like it better, you know, I mean, in me and Nate's case, we love those versions of the band. Those are our favorites. Yeah. You know, well, I mean, even thinking about listening to like uh, one more rainy day and thinking that two and a half years later, they'd be recording in rock. Right. You know, that's pretty amazing right there. Yeah. You know, but, but it just seems like so many fans and this is why I stopped looking on forums and stopped, you know, really getting on the internet at all. Because people are just like, well, if if I can't have the one that I want, the band shouldn't exist or they should just quit because it's not what I want to hear. Well, right. just don't listen. Just, you know, say this album isn't for me and move on with your day. Why do you have to ruin it for everyone else? Exactly. Right. Yeah, I mean, they have as much they have a they have a right to grow musically and try different things, you know? Right, exactly. And I would just think KISS would get so much of that because they've tried so many styles over the years. Mm-hmm. You know, what what is classic KISS? What is you know, when when you've done so many different things, how do you even define that? You know, I would imagine this would be considered the classic lineup of Kiss. Yeah. I mean, for the first, like, uh, from like 70, 73 to 79, 80, um, you know, what they, what they put out or what they released is considered classic Kiss, you know, the first lineup. Um, I would say that the music was pretty consistent. I mean, you know, with the production 
you know, of course, varying and some of the songs varying, like right up until uh, I would say 77, like they were pretty consistent. Like that would be like, like classic kiss. And I think that that's the reason that people feel that is because that's the basis of what the band was built on. And then everything that comes after is, is like you said, Oh, you know, open to interpretation. It's like, Oh, it's not this, it's this. And it's, I mean, at this point they've been around so long. I mean, that was like what, four or five years of them writing and producing a style, one style of music. And then later seventies, eighties and beyond, it all started to get, you know, a kind of, um, you know, uh, um, a lot more varied, different. Yeah. So, well, and, and you have to take into consideration too how much the music industry was changing. I mean, when you start getting into the early '80s, the British New Wave invasion was huge. It it changed the style of that. We were kind of recovering from disco, and mm-hmm. you know, you still had hard rock bands, but you also had punk that had started in the you know the late '70s that had taken over for a while. I mean, there were so many things that were changing in the industries. How would bands not just automatically? just by the influence of everything around you change their, their style a little bit. Right. I'm kind of glad that was the era that deep purple wasn't around because there's a part of me that, that would be curious to know what their writing would have been like. And another part of me that's like, I'm really glad they weren't writing anything during this period of, of constantly (laughs) changing music. I don't know. I feel like when I hear some of like the, the, the late seventies, early eighties rainbow albums, like, you know, because Richie is such a, like a recognizable guitar player and his riffs are so recognizable. I feel like that's maybe what they would have sounded like. Plus Roger was in, you know, a yeah. couple of versions of the band. So I feel like that could have been what they would have sounded like. I, I think too, one of the greatest ironies about purple and, and Blackmore is that the the album that he left after Stormbringer, he said it was just, you know, it was too light. It was too bluesy and all this. He goes and makes Richie Blackmore's Rainbow, which is not a heavy sounding album. It really sounds kind of mellow. Even Man on the Silver Mountain mm-hmm. does not sound that heavy until you get to the live album. Right. That's that's where it really happened. So I, mm-hmm. I just find it funny. He's like, you know, this is just too mellow for me, too, too bluesy. And he's like, I'm going to make my own album. I'm going to go back to what I want to do. And then it's like mellow and songs like Temple of the King, which would have fit well on Stormbringer. And <laughs> right. You know. I, I love the album, though. Don't get me wrong; it's it's actually one of my early influence albums. But I just I just find that so funny that he wanted to get away from that sound and then went and made an album that sounded pretty much just as light. Yeah, well, go figure them out, right? Just just let let's <laughs> go sh- figure. Rich. What, did, what did Glenn say? Uh, less shoeshine music, but <laughs> <laughs> but still just oh, as light. Oh, you gotta oh, love my it. Goodness. Gotta love it. Well, getting back to Kiss, uh, this is another one of my favorites on this album. Uh, It's called She. There is a good amount of reverb on that vocal track. And that mm-hmm. has to be, I'm going to say that has to be at least three tracks of vocals uh, done together. And they could have used a doubler, you know, to do it. 
<laughs> but I, I feel like there's just enough slight difference between them that I think those were actually all performed. Uh, I love th- this goes back to one of the earlier songs where it just sounded darker and, and different. I think it was the second song. Uh, wasn't it two timer? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and, and I like that sound. I love Gene's voice on this. Some great drumming on this one, too. A lot of dynamics, those little ghost fills in there that you can hear. Um, for some reason, though, as this song continues on, it reminds me of something that could have been done by, say, the James Gang or maybe like a solo Joe Walsh song. Hmm. It just it just has that feeling for me for some reason. But I really dig this one. What do you think? Uh, this is another one of my favorites. Um, it was um, another staple of their early live shows. Um, this was one of the ones that Gene and Paul had um, recycled from their like um, from their earlier band. So that's uh, one of the reasons I feel this song is a little more fleshed out is because it already was a song. They'd already recorded it. And actually the original version had a, <laughs> had a flute solo on it. Oh, wow. And a horn and a horn section. Hmm. Um, so they really heavied this one up. Um, but, um, yeah, this, um, yeah, I really like this song It's Gene and Paul singing together, um, um, and the, um, the verses and the choruses. And, um, there's this great, like, you know, bass breakdown, which live, you know, kind of goes on a little bit more where it's like, uh, Gene and Peter, you know, kind of going boom, 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 you know, kind of playing off that thing for a while. So it really lends itself great to a live, uh, setting. And then the, the end of this song, um, went into, um, in the early shows, Ace's guitar solo. Um, this was like the setup for it, like the you know, after the guitar solo and like that breakdown. Um, so this is another like early classic kiss song. And, um, you know, this is like one of those where, um, you know, the a recycled song from earlier on, you know, when they're in their days, which, you know, actually was successful, you know, it wasn't like a throwaway. Right. Well, and that, that makes sense because there are a lot of layers in this song that we don't hear in some of the other songs. So that would make sense that it had already been written and they used that time that they would have been writing it to actually just make it, you know, a little more uh, produced, I guess. Uh, yeah. yeah, that's, that's interesting. So I'm going to guess that they probably sang together and then they did another take of that. So we're actually probably hearing four voices, uh, to Maybe, make that, yeah. but they sound really good together. Oh yeah, Gene, Gene and Paul together. Like, I mean, all the background vocals that you hear. Um, I don't know if it's all of them, but I definitely know it's Gene and Paul together. Um, I don't know if Peter's in there, but when they, when they, when they do, um, when they do choruses together, it's just like uh, they just they sound phenomenal. Yeah, I, I, I hate. I know that people are going to complain if I say it, so I'm going to say it anyway. Though I think that they're a more modern, like John and Paul singing together. In the Beatles, I think they really accomplished what they set out to do in that way. Mm-hmm. Well, I think yeah, I think for for Kiss fans um, or anybody that's a fan of Kiss music, um, you know, it's it's not comparing like how they sound or how talented they are to um, uh, Lennon and McCartney. It's just the same dynamic. They thought of themselves as that kind of song, like a songwriting duo as a performing duo as a team. And, you know, together their voices kind of created that distinct sound that is, you know, part of the early kiss sound. Yeah. I definitely feel a unity between them, you know, from, and I don't know what was going on in the band at the time, like relationships and such, but musically, I feel that there's a real strong unity between them. 
Well, they were, I mean, Gene and Paul were the first ones uh, to meet, you know, they got together and they formed their first band, broke it off and then looked for the other two. Um, they found Peter and then they found Ace. So those two had built, you know, the concept ahead of time. So they were, you know, they were close, you know, beforehand, you know, they were the ones like, okay, we're going to be where we're Lennon and McCartney, you know, we're the new Lennon and McCartney, right? you know, yeah. let's, let's put our, let's put our vision together. Yeah. And, and interestingly, much like the Beatles, you said, uh, whoever wrote the song typically sang it. Um, yeah, yeah. I mean, um, uh, later on, there would be other, um, there would be uh, exceptions like uh, God of Thunder, for instance, was written by Paul. Hmm. And Ezrin took it away from him and said, this should be a Gene song. Yeah. And um, they they changed it around. Uh, if you've ever heard the demo or the original version uh, that Paul sang and played on is much different than the one that we know now. And they, you know, he really, you know, changed the lyrics and, you know, turned into this kind of demonic uh, theme song for Gene. Um, but, um, you know, those kinds of things happened, you know, for the good of the, for the good of the music, um, you know, at, at, at other points, but typically like, you know, the, um, the, the guy that wrote the song would play it or like in the early days, like if Ace wrote a song like, you know, Gene or, or Peter would sing it um, instead of him until he, you know, um, you know, reportedly, you know, worked up the confidence to sing his own material. Well, it, the, the version of God of Thunder that I learned was actually from Kiss Alive 2. And mm-hmm. it wasn't actually for quite a while when I went back and I heard the original version of it. And I thought, wow, this is so slow. It is, yeah. <laughs> you know, if but if you got to know the original version first, and then you heard it from you know any live version of it after, then you'd be like, wow, they really sped this up live, and you would be okay with the original. When you've heard the live one first, it's hard to go back to a slower tempo, and and really be able to to groove with the song because now it's like it's too slow. You know, right. like this because the standard tempo for me is a live version. Right. Yeah, and I mean that's another. Um, you know, instance in, um, you know, that the, the album version was, was really like trudging. It was really slow, but I mean, in this case, I think that it was intentional, um, you know, on Bob Ezrin's part, it's not like he made a mistake. He, you know, he wouldn't have, you know, that wouldn't have been an oversight on his part. He intentionally made it slow and brooding and demonic too, because that was, you know, he was building that up to, they were building that up to be the the theme song of the demon, you know, but then when they went to do it live, of course, they're going to, you know, they're going to bring up the tempo because, you know, (laughs) you can't keep it that slow. Yeah. Well, I mean, why would you play it live if you were going to play it that slow? It's like, you just would cut it out of the set. I mean, you have to have a couple songs that bring it down a little bit. But yeah, that would have been way too slow for a for any kind of live performance. Yeah, you know, unless unless they used it like as an intro for them coming out, and it was playing in the background or something. I I don't right. see that tempo working anywhere in a live show. Right. Uh, good song though. Uh, okay, so that brings us to wow, we're almost done already. Uh, Love her all oh. I can.
Uh, this is another great cowbell song. <laughs> <laughs> now I can't stop hearing the cowbell since you said it. It's like every time I'm like, oh, there it is. There it is. But you know, he he. I love that little snare accent that he plays to make this beat like not a straight sounding beat. It, it is, but he kind of just, you know, changes it a little bit with that extra accent. I really think that's a great drum beat. Uh, love the energy on this song. The vocals are a little bit blah for me. I kind of feel like this is one that they're reading and don't really feel, uh, at least through the verses. But overall, uh, yeah, I think this is a good song. It's a great riff, too. Oh, yeah, um, definitely. This is um, this is another one from Wicked Lester that they that they took um um and it was um another one that had a um i believe it had a horn section in the original one um but uh it's pretty faithful to that first version and like i said it was only two or three years earlier than this um so um from from what I, i think she is probably the most drastic change from the wicked lester version this one is pretty similar to that one um but um in reading um one of the kiss books they said that the the influence for this song um was um from the uh first album by Nas uh which was the Todd Rundgren Todd Rundgren's uh group and um the the opening track on that uh, open my eyes if you hear that it's basically this is a carbon copy of it oh wow um so um which is really and that's a, actually like I went back and listened to that uh as well and I'm like wow that's a pretty good song too although that's where the similarities kind of end but um but I mean that's just another example of how these guys were kind of pulling from their influences and what was around them and you know trying to you know work those into their own music um you know in the early days like you know just I mean they were still learning about being songwriters you know i mean uh you you can say whatever you want but i mean when you're 20 20 something years old you're not always going to be you know a prodigy oh yeah Um, for sure right yeah um but that being said you know this is like um you know one of my uh one of my favorite kiss songs as well one of my favorite ace solos um just a great energy in it you know because like i said it's just ace being ace you know um i think he really uh, grew and was like, um, you know, over the first couple of albums, even though it was like only about a year's time, but definitely um, just like unleashed, you know, I feel like this is one of the albums where his solos weren't as worked out. Um, they weren't as planned for him, you know, because I know that like, you know, they, they took a lot of times to work things out because I mean, you go to um, uh, like, like something like Detroit Rock City. Um, I think uh, Bob Ezrin had um, had come up with some kind of like flamenco type of uh, Spanish guitar solo. And that was the solo for like Detroit Rock City. Right. Yeah. Um, and um, even like uh, Christine 16 on Love Gun, the demo was done with Gene and the Van Halen brothers. So that was pretty much an Eddie Van Halen solo. Um, so, you know what I mean? It's like, as you get further and further down the line and people are breaking off and doing their own demos and using other musicians, then it's just like, it's not, and and that's not to say that those weren't great or they're not like classics or they weren't like, you know, his, but I mean, this was just more like, you know, given the the context of the album is like, he just walked in and was like, all right, this is the bag of tricks that I have now is like a, you know, a, a, you know, 20 something year old guy and just like let it rip without, all these outside influences are overthinking it. And I, I think that's probably one of the things that I like the best about the album is, is like, it's not, there wasn't a lot of overthinking. 
Yeah, you don't have time to really second guess when you just don't have time at all. You know, right. That, that's definitely. But I, I have a feeling that this album was kind of a um, a big opportunity for them come the next album to say, look, we made something pretty good out of that situation. Now let's take everything we've learned from that and the following tour and all our of our other influences and let's make the next album. Um, you know, an experience like that can can be good. It could be bad and frustrating while you're in it. But when you're done with it and you look back on it, you can go, you know what, though? We actually got some good stuff out of this. Let's let's take that energy and move that to the next album, you know. And yeah. then and then when they had time to actually write out and develop all the songs, um, you know, you have that potential for that to be a much better album just because you had this experience. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's interesting. Flamenco, I would not have, have would not have thought of that. There was one song uh, that's on the current Uriah Heap album. When I interviewed Mick Box, he told me it was originally done as a shuffle. And I cannot, for the life of me, hear that song as a shuffle. You know, it just, it just, it's, it's a very, it's, it's a, a, a just under mid tempo song, very straightforward. And yeah. to think of that as a shuffle, like it just doesn't register. So when you said flamenco, I'm like, <laughs> I can't, I can't hear that yet. That hasn't, that hasn't translated yet. Yeah. But that's Bob Ezrin, you know, that's just Bob Ezrin mm-hmm. going, Hey, uh, I saw a chocolate bar on the way to the studio. So I think we should do something that's, uh, I don't know, and then he'll just throw whatever that chocolate bar inspired and, and it works. <laughs> and it's a number one hit. <laughs> yeah. I, I feel like there must be like some magic to being Bob Ezrin because that guy just creates hits. That's what he does. Yeah. And he's, um, yeah, he's definitely got his own stamp. Yeah, for you sure. You know, that he puts on things. I've, I've heard from, uh, from uh, people, um, Oh, how did they, how do they put it? They're just like, um, the bands don't, the bands don't like have albums as a Bob Ezrin producer. They're Bob Ezrin albums and the band plays the soundtrack. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I can see they're, that. They're actually Bob Ezrin albums. He go, the band is just there to like, you know, carry it out, you know? Mm. So it's like well, somebody put it like that once. I'm like, that's a way to think about it. Have you seen the, uh, the turning to crime documentary? Uh, no, I haven't yet. I just got it a couple days ago from England. Uh, it's really interesting because Bob wasn't there to tell mm. them, you know, I like this, I don't like that. They would, they would. It seems like they would call him in between takes and maybe play back something for him and you know do it again or whatever. But he wasn't there to stop them or to influence them and go. We should do this in mm. a different key or anything. I mean, it was it was kind of the band on their own with his influence. So having done three albums hmm. with the guy taking everything that they've learned and going, okay, well he's around, but we're kind of on our own for the recording, you know, Interesting. yeah, huh? I, I'm sure you'll really enjoy it when you get to watch it for mm-hmm. sure. All right. We got one track left and it is called, well, it's one that you you guys might know rock and roll all night N I T E because that's rock and roll way to spell <laughs> night. <laughs> yeah. And it saves the printer like two letters. Crazy. You say you wanna go 
there's actually a lot more going on in the riff than it sounds like there's going on in the riff. There's a couple of layers there that are playing some nice uh, dynamics that keep that really interesting. I have one note that I wrote down for this one, and it just says, I fucking hate this song. <laughs> it is pretty played out. <laughs> well, it's it's that, but I'll tell you why I hate it. It's the crazy and every day to actually like break down the word every like that. It just, it feels like something that a four-year-old would do. And I don't mean to be like mean, I, I don't mean that in a mean way, but it just yeah. does like, it does not jive with anything I've ever heard Kiss do or most other bands of that era to sing that way. It just, it just kind of ruins the, the whole thing for me. It just feels like, I don't like we tried to make this work and it didn't work. So we just stretched out this word and really emphasized the syllables, you know, musically. Yeah. I like the song. I think it's pretty good. It's, it's a great riff. It's got a good beat to it. Uh, I like the way it starts out. Um, but the vocals, man, the vocals just kill this one for me. Well, I mean, I tr- it's, it's hard. It's, it's kind of like when we were reviewing Smoke on the Water. It's like, all right, how do we listen to this like objectively mm-hmm. um, without the years and years of it being like, you know, shoved into our ears and down our throats, you know, on radio and everything and, and like evaluate it. But um, I mean, yeah, on one hand, it is a good song. Um, I mean, yeah, I, I get what you're saying. Like when I think about how you break down the the lyrics, it can it can get kind of annoying. Yeah, yeah. Um, but this was kind of a song uh, song written by committee. Um, this was like planned out. Um, so I guess um, Paul uh, the or the story goes that you know the um, you know Bogart came to them and said, you know, you guys need an anthem. You need something that, you know, the crowd can sing along to. You need like, you know, your signature song. Uh, Because that's what he was trying to achieve on this album, was trying to get them a radio hit, trying to get, you know, trying to get them down that that road. And he's not wrong. Right. And so Paul comes up with the chorus and goes to Gene. And Gene's like, well, I have this song called Drive You Wild or drive you crazy or something like that. And just like the two parts of the other song, they put Gene, Gene's song together with, you know, Paul's chorus and, you know, there's your anthem. And um, I think it was um, out of all the reading that I've done on it, I just remember that the commentary on it in Ace's book um, was probably from his point of view now, probably not, you know, from at the time was um, something to the effect of that. It seems really disingenuous to, write a song for the purpose of being a hit. Like if you write a good enough song, it becomes a hit on its own or a classic on its own, but they were really trying to do that. But, um, and I mean, I get that way of thinking, but on the other hand, it did become a huge, it did become a huge hit to begin their signature song. So mission accomplished. So um, that's why I think though, if you, especially, I mean, you could do it then you could do it in the eighties, especially uh, like thinking of like the Beastie Boys uh, with no sleep till Brooklyn, you mm-hmm. you have a theme of we're going to party, and you put it in a rock and roll setting. It's going to be a hit right. to some extent. Maybe not so much if you did it today, but definitely during mid seventies through mid eighties. So he he definitely hit the nail on the head by picking that theme. I think where I would have done it a little bit differently, and this is just me as a writer, would be instead of every day, I would have gone with maybe every day and smoothed it out a little 
I think I would have liked that more. It wouldn't have seemed as as choppy to me. And I think there are some like uh, there might be some live versions where you know that it's it's done like that. Um, you know, just you know, excitement of the live performance or whatever. Um, but I mean, at this point, aside from it being you know a really catchy song um, and in the in the studio, like they had had, um, you know, they talked about how they wanted to have that whole crowd dynamic. So they had everybody that was possibly in the studio behind the mics uh, singing the chorus. So um, even though it might not come through, you know, on the album, they probably had like you know twenty people singing. I want to rock and roll, which is why you don't hear the the typical just Gene and Paul background vocals because they had like roadies, Peter Chris's wife, like everybody was just up on the mic singing. Okay, I, I'm glad you said that because I was going to ask you why this chorus sounded so different than the rest of them, and I thought maybe they doubled or tripled it more or something. But yeah, if they're adding all kinds of different different voices yeah. in there, that makes sense. That's a good idea yeah. though. That because again. That gives it that party atmosphere, right? It's not two guys yep. singing, I'm going to party. It's a whole crowd of people singing, I'm going to party. <laughs> exactly. Because you have two guys singing and you're just like, yeah, okay. So <laughs> it, it's like that scene in the office where uh, where Jim goes to Michael and Dwight's party and it's literally just Michael and Dwight and a strobe light <laughs> you know, and, and 16 bottles of booze. That's not a yeah. party. <laughs> no. Um, but, the, but the thing about this song is that when you're live – listening to it it doesn't matter if you've heard it like one time or a thousand times it's like when like the last show that i remember being at when the con- like the confetti was coming down and everybody was singing it's not it's not at that point it's not even the song it's just the excitement that it generates um from everybody that's around you um and you're pumping your fist and you're singing it whether you know you're tired of it or not and that's the that was the whole point of this song was to create that as an anthem and just being part of that, like, you know, um, you know, almost 50 years later, you know, it was, um, you know, pretty wild experience. And I mean, I've talked about that on our other show too. This is just like, um, um, there were some songs where you think like, Oh, there's this fatigue factor or something um, like you can't get into it, but there are some songs which are made for a crowd or a group setting. Um, and I think the um, the the example that I use was Sister Christian. Mm, yeah. Whereas it's like, if you're listening to that and you're sitting at home, it's like, okay, that's one thing. But it's like when you're in a bar, right? And it comes on the jukebox and then it starts to build up when everybody starts pounding on the tables. Dun, 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 <laughs> dun, 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 it's like, that's not something you do on your own. That's something that everybody collectively does because they, they're just like, that's what you do because they hear that build up and they feel it. And everybody just gets that excitement. And, um, and that's what songs like that do. And that's what this song does. And it's, it's amazing to me that they were able to just, you know, at this point of their career, just go into a room, patchwork two songs together, like spit it out and like, wow, it worked. <laughs> well, but again, it's that not overthinking things. It's like, you know, all right, here's an idea I have. All right, great. Let's record it. And there you go. But mm-hmm. the power of music itself is really amazing. I mean, look at the song Shout. Whenever uh, uh, whenever that's played and people are dancing to it, they follow those instructions to the T. And I'm yep. thinking, look at how easy it is to manipulate people. <laughs> it's true you know they're they're lowering themselves now they're they're standing back up again all because i told them to 50 years ago or 60 years ago however old that (laughs) song is you know and they still do it i think i think this is a perfect song for an anthem for a band because Mm -hmm. 
it's something that every young kid is going to want to get into. This this song represents the life they were living, I think, more so than any of the other songs, because it was just, you know, raw living, you know, just partying and whatever. Uh, yeah. I, and, and who can't get behind that as a young kid? I mean, think about, you know, John Matola in seventh or eighth grade. And you're like, you know, yeah, we're going to party. Of course, we don't really party. Because we're not old enough. We don't know people. We can't go to, you know, keggers and whatever yet. But you you live that mentality, right? So you're mm-hmm. getting kids from like mid-teen all the way up to late 20s that are just going to jump at a song like this. Mm-hmm. You know, it's it's actually brilliant. for from a, Even just from a marketing standpoint, it's brilliant. I agree. Yeah. I, I think this is a good album. The more that I, the more I listen to it, and the more I, I hear, you know, what's been behind it and all, I, I have even more appreciation for it. I'm really glad you turned me on to this because up until a couple of days ago, I've never been able to say, yeah, I like a Kiss album. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, for me, like I wanted to, I wanted to choose this one because I feel it's not every Kiss fan's conventional like first pick as their favorite album. Like they'll go um, alive or rock and roll over love gun. Um, you know, one of those albums, like even the first kiss album um, uh, in, in a, you know, um, in some lesser circumstances, but they'll always go with those kind of like mid, mid to late seventies, like when they were at the height of their, you know, popularity. And there's, there's nothing taken away from those albums, but to me, this is like, you know, putting on a, a, like a pair of like warm slippers or something, you know, it's just like, it just, it feels so good because like, to me, it's like being, it's like steeped in the history. Like this was, this was when they were like, they were shopping around for like other labels. Like they're just like, all right, we're not doing it on Casablanca. We're not becoming successful. Like they were on the verge of bankruptcy before when this album was coming out before they did the live album. Um, And, you know, I mean, this was a band that was like, you know, on the brink, like they're trying so hard to make it and they weren't what they became yet. And I mean, for me, like, you know, there, there are times when that's, you know, the most fascinating, you know, best parts of like a a band's history and, you know, some of their music. Um, And, you know, I mean, like there are, there are days or weeks where I'm just like, all right, I'm totally want to be into like kiss from the 80s you know which is could couldn't be further from what this is <laughs> right yeah that that would have been uh was lick it up in the 80s or was that closer to the 90s no it was in 83 okay because so. i remember it being on mtv and yeah. i didn't i didn't correlate it with kiss because they weren't in their makeup in the video so i, I it took me a while to make that connection um, well that was their first that was their first non-makeup album and video so oh, okay uh, um, let me ask you another question about Kiss that I, I forgot to ask you earlier, because, you know, when in, in the late 70s, early 80s, there was this big thing about backwards masking and how bands were, you know, putting subliminal messages into their music. I'm mm-hmm. sure Kiss got accused of it somewhere. But what I remember specifically about Kiss and the rumors that were going around was that their uh, name was for uh, Knights in Satan's Service, I think it was. Yeah, that that there was that was just something that you know. Once that rumor started, Gene was like, "Yeah, let him think that if that helps us sell some more records." <laughs> yeah, I believe that was around the '82, uh, like the Creatures of the Night tour. That's when they were getting a lot of like religious protests and stuff like that at their concerts. Yeah, and they would. Um, that's when that whole thing that was that was invented. That was invented by 
those groups, those religious groups and those people that were trying to make KISS something it wasn't. Like, KISS didn't mean anything other than KISS. You know, they didn't, it wasn't an acronym for anything. They just wanted to make it. I think it was um, like... Um, what it, uh, when the the PMRC hearings with D. Snyder, you must have yeah. seen oh, yeah. those. Mm-hmm. Where um, I can't remember exactly what he said, but they were talking about you know the filthy lyrics, and he was just like, "Well, I mean, the the lyrics aren't dirty." He goes, "That was just that was that was Ms. Gore's and Mrs. Gore's mind." He goes, "That's her making it up. Like it was it was it's her mind that's dirty." He goes, putting the the meaning into the lyrics, right? And they're all like, "Oh, oh," you know, the monocles fell out, everybody <laughs> fainted, you know, it's like. <laughs> but I mean, that's, that's basically what it is. And I mean, what a brilliant, you know, tactic too. Like, I mean, um, uh, I talked about this on our show too, is like, um, all, all this kind of stuff, like kiss with the makeup, you know, um, Motley Crue in the early eighties with the, the, the pentagrams and the, you know, um, Ozzy, um, you know, all that stuff that I loved in the early eighties, it was like King diamond, right. Yeah. Um, Right. It's all, it was all marketing. It was all marketing to make parents hate it and to make us want it. And boy, did it work. And then now I'm an adult and I hear all this stuff on on podcasts or I read books or whatever. And it's like, you know, it, it was just imagery. You know, we were, you know, we just, they said, yeah, let's throw some pentagrams up there. The guys didn't know any better. I don't even think King Diamond even like, you know, be, like would join, the, belong to the Church of Satan. You right. know what I mean? Yeah. So it's like, and it was all it was all just marketing. And I'm thinking I'm the same age that my parents were then. And I know that now And they weren't smart enough to know that all they knew was <laughs> is that they hated it and they tried to keep me away from it. Right. And it's yeah. Like- yeah. And, and it's funny. I, I think probably the only band that I could think of that probably really lives the kind of style that they show would be Gwar. I think everybody else is just like, <laughs> this is just our, our onstage character. Right. You know, uh, but but yeah, I, I, the funny thing is the PMRC, that whole thing really ended up working against them anyway, because bands that weren't destined to sell 10,000 copies were selling 200,000 copies because Absolutely, there was a sticker yeah. on it that said, you can't have this. Oh, yeah. And that made us want it. I mean, yeah. you think that I wasn't running out to get the, the Guns N' Roses uh, Appetite for Destruction when I saw that sticker on it mm-hmm. when it came out? Yeah. Um, but um, but the the backwards uh, messages thing. I think the only time that Kiss was ever involved in um, maybe something like that was like um, the going to destroy or like all of the Bob Ezra noises on um, the the effects that he had put into God of Thunder. You know, there was a lot of interesting sounding layers there, and I think people were you know looking for like you know oh we hear noises or like children's you know saying stuff or like stuff going it's like there was nothing in there yeah i I just see it i wasn't i couldn't think of anything specifically i had heard about any of their songs but it just seems like at that time they certainly would have been roped into that somewhere yeah yeah the time that the time that it was really big like around 82 like there wasn't really their their music went right back to being kind of straight ahead rock so really all they had was just like people were just like harping on their image and then just taking the, taking the letters of their, you know, their name and trying to work something into it and being like, Oh yeah, he spits blood and he looks like a demon and you know, whatever else. And it's like, okay, like, you know, get out of here. But but it really, I mean, that's just free free publicity for them. You know, they're taking the stuff they're doing and just putting it to another level. You know, exactly. But, but yeah. the, the name, isn't it K period, I period, S period, S period? Is that their actual name? No. Oh, it's not. No, it's just, no, it's like Kiss. Well, like when they, 
when they came up with it, it was just like, um, it was supposed to be something really simple, you know, like just kiss. It's short, one syllable, um, uh, like, uh, you know, romantic kiss, kiss of death, like, you know, just kind of, you know, you can take it any way that you want. Um, you know, and they just, they just, just like, yeah, this sounds right. Well, and it sticks in your head. I mean, it's a great name. Yeah. And I mean, even, even the logo was not by design. I mean, you got to remember these guys were doing like doodling this stuff, like on paper before they were even famous. And so, you know, Ace or Paul, depending on who you believe, uh, came up with the lightning bolt S's for the logos, probably because they thought it was cool. Not because, you know, they love Nazi Germany or their, <laughs> you know, whatever people have been accusing them from. Well, I mean, in, in, uh, in Germany and stuff like that, they can't even have the the S's on the albums, like German pressings of the albums, you have regular S's in the logos. Really? Yeah. Wow. A lot of them. A lot of them. Yeah. But I mean, that was another thing that people harped on was like the, the SS, you know, being like, uh, you know, somehow related to um, Nazi Germany. And it's, um, you know, as a lot of people know, Gene and Paul are both Jewish. So it's just like, you know, they're like, okay, that doesn't make any sense. Right. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. I, 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 you can see anything in anything if you want to, like you can make some kind of argument for it and, and, it, and you can make it sound convincing. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I never really thought that was the thing. I remember hearing that back in the eighties too. And that's why we weren't, you know, we weren't allowed to really listen to bands in our area, you know, they were like banned from different things or our parents were like mm-hmm. the word would get around through church or whatever. And they'd be like, well, you shouldn't be listening to that. You shouldn't play Dungeons and Dragons, you know, cause you're going to, you're going to be evil and yeah. all those things that we grew up. I, I remember after Columbine, uh, cause I was living in, in Littleton, Colorado, right down the street from, from that school. And uh, they had banned mortal combat from the arcades. You know, they wow. had taken out all the mortal combat machines. Like they left Tekken, but Mortal Kombat was gone. Like it's it's the same game, basically. <laughs> you know. Oh wow. Uh but but that's just it. I mean, we were so dumb in the way that we could be influenced. You know, yeah. and I'm sure a lot of that goes on today, but it's just when I look back on that, I'm like, how could we be so stupid to fall for any of that? I mean, uh, when when you're kids, you do. You know, you completely yeah. fall for the trappings. I'm just surprised that my parents did. Yeah. You know? I mean, uh, but I mean, they were, I don't know. I mean, I, I feel like <laughs> I feel like I'm cooler than my, my parents were than I, when they were my age. <laughs> well, that's what we but hope I mean, anyway. Yeah. But I mean, you know, they also, um, they, they grew up with a different, you know, type of music. Like, I mean, I, um, you know, I've talked about um, on, on uh, my show, how I got into a lot of the music I'm into now because my dad's old records were downstairs and I found, I found grand funk. I found uh, made in Japan. I found uh, rocks, Aerosmith, um, billion dollar babies by Alice Cooper. Like, I mean, those were all my dad's albums. And I mean, those were like, you know, some pretty cool albums to have Santana, the first Santana album. Um, so, I mean, you know, I would say out of all of those, Alice Cooper was probably the most inflammatory one. Um, you know, but I mean, um, you know, my, my parents didn't hold on to that. Like they're not, you know, they're in their seventies now. They're not just like, yeah, Alice, you know, <laughs> not, into, I can picture myself being like that in another 30 years, but well, you know, and, and thinking about their parents, when the Beatles came out going, who are these hippies? Look at that haircut. And, you know, yeah. and they're singing, like, I want to hold your hand is, you know, talking about love and stuff. And, and they're like, oh no, they're, they're devil worshipers. They're look at that hair. <laughs> Men don't have hair like that. 
Like it's it's weird to think about how the generational changes. You know, then yeah. come the nineties, we're like, look at those stupid pants everybody's wearing. <laughs> why why is uh, their clothing basically a parachute? Yeah. <laughs> it doesn't make any oh sense. My God. You know? It's like every generation doesn't really accept the thing that comes after. Right. You know, right. and, and to, I think we're opening up more and more because we're kind of, you know, as a society, when it comes to art, I think we're a little bit more accepting of trends changing than than in the past. But things aren't as drastic as they used to be either. Right. You know, I don't know. I, I'm just really glad you turned me on to this album. Thank you so much. And thanks for coming on the show. And I can't wait till you come back on and do another one. It's always fun hanging out with you. Yeah, you too. Well, thank you for letting me indulge my inner kiss nerd. Uh, yeah, for <laughs> getting sure. To, you know, getting to, uh, you know, getting you into this album was uh, definitely, definitely worth it. You know, and I, I enjoy, I love talking about this stuff. You know, I don't get to talk about a lot of kiss stuff or kiss albums. So, right. Yeah. Until you start. I don't usually podcast. get a captive, a, a captive <laughs> audience on it, you know? <laughs> right. <laughs> well, I, I think you're, you know, you're always fun to hang out with and talk to. And, you know, anytime you want to come on and, and talk about whatever the hell I'm doing, you're, <laughs> you're more than welcome to come on the show. For you guys, right. uh, go check out the Deep Purple podcast. It is on every location that you can find this podcast. They actually do a video version of their show that sometimes does not get kicked off of YouTube and you can actually watch them talk about things. I was really bummed that the, uh, was it the Highway Star episode or was it the one before that where Nate Uh, was uh, making his drinks out of a coconut and it got banned from YouTube. And I'm like, I think you should at least post him drinking out, you know, making his drink in the coconut so we can see what he was doing. It was, uh, it was the accidentally on purpose episode. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. That's funny. Yeah, it was. Yeah, it was too bad. Yeah, that was that was the. Uh, yeah, I think that was the night that he was he was doing the tropical drinks, and I and I went all Tommy Bolin, and I was drinking wine. That's right. Yeah, <laughs> it was because because of Cayman Islands and uh, yeah. and all that. Yeah, that's right. No, that was a that was a great album too. I'm really glad that you guys got to that. It's one I've always heavily enjoyed. And I remember, uh, I think it was Roger was saying how disappointed they were that the record company just kind of recorded it and then didn't really promote it. Yeah. You know, I mean, obviously, your your completists of Deep Purple are going to just buy it because it's something that somebody in Deep Purple made. But mm-hmm. that's, that's a really good album. Absolutely. Couldn't agree more. Well, we look forward to more as you guys branch out with all your creative episodes far beyond just the music of Deep Purple. My favorite, and I'm still waiting for the follow up, is David Coverdale tweets. <laughs> because he he gives us nothing short of of entertainment every single day. Ah, oh, he's the best. Yeah, yeah. He's awesome. Well, <clears throat> part two, part two's in the hopper somewhere. It's gotta be. <laughs> well, it has yeah. to be because you called the first one part one. That that alone <laughs> says that there has to be a part two. Yeah, well, Nate, he's always thinking ahead. So that he is. Well, you take care, my friend. Thanks so much for coming on the show. Cannot wait Thank to have you. you guys come back. Guys, check out the Deep Purple podcast. It's it's my favorite podcast on the internet, even over my own. I don't listen to my own show. (laughs) Thank you so much. We'll see you on the next one. All right. Okay. Bye-bye.